0: good morning welcome to wake up carolina tuesday morning may 2nd 843 once again just the two of us no shot josh and i wouldn't say no show jones but i show up nearly every day to do the job uh good morning josh how are you i'm good glad to be here again so so flying solo for the first time well not the first time ever the first time in this in dead luxury um and josh is one of these guys who has I kind of made his mind up early in life of something he wants to pursue as um as gainful employment. So congratulations and and thanks for the hard work yesterday, Josh. Thank you. Let's I, I, you know I don't want to talk about the Braves. They split a doubleheader yesterday. I don't want to talk about the Gamecocks. They stayed about where they were. You know? And I'm not keeping up with Clemson. I'm not being disrespectful to Clemson, but I just don't keep up with Clemson. I don't keep up with the Gamecock baseball. Seven and twelve. They were my Gamecocks since then it was kind of a sport that some people care a lot about some people don't care a lot about Uh, football kind of rules today as far as i'm concerned and um and we'll get ever closer to that time of the year but the gamecocks are having a special kind of year this year so there's a um (laughs) a fair weather newfound enthusiasm um amongst gamecock faithful yours um, truly included so let's go to um i want to go back to this subject because i think this is so interesting and i wish we got lost Jeff, yesterday we did not cut Jeff. I mean, Jeff, something happened to the phones. We lost Jeff. I didn't give Jeff. A ho- hopefully, hopefully he's listening and will call back in at some point in time this morning. But I think there's such an interesting conversation to be had about the culture wars in America. Now, once again, I've I've been conditioned to believe this is the way you frame the debate. It's culture war. It's culture war. It's culture war. Uh, Do the Republicans want to fight the culture war? Um, Look at the polling in relation to abortion and gay rights and, I guess, now transgenderism or gender dysphoria. Um, Do the Republicans want to go down that road? Peter Thiel, I think that's who Jeff commented on yesterday, Thiel has said he thinks the Republicans are spending too much time fighting the culture wars. Because of that, Thiel says, I'm keeping my money to myself. I'm not bankrolling any candidates. I'm not bankrolling any campaigns. Remember, I was the one that said a couple of weeks back that we need somebody like Peter Thiel to become our Mark Zuckerberg. And by that, I mean fund some of the, um, some of the vote harvesting apparatus that I think it'll take to be successful in a national election where Pennsylvania, uh, give me a Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada. I mean, those five states seem to me to be the most, most hotly contested. I mean, obviously, Georgia is hotly contested, but I think Georgia's done some things that will uh, make it more difficult for they've, – they've stopped the private financing of campaigns and the Zuckerberg money that was invested very heavily in Gwinnett and Fulton County regarding um, ballot harvesting or basically to pay for the ballot harvesting that was to happen. Um, but I still think at some point in time – if a party denotes itself as conservative in nature, you can't shy away from a, an, an ever-increasing likelihood that culture wars and some of the cultural issues will be on the table. Now, here's where um, it gets a little bit funky, if you will. Some people believe that climate change and renewable energy, green energy, is an element within the culture wars. Some don't believe um, that's the case. Some believe that culture wars are exclusively about sex and orient, uh, gender orientation. Uh, I, I want to get to an Indiana councilman here just a couple of seconds ago, kind of a um, a hefty and chummy white guy who says he identifies as a African-American lesbian and who's to challenge him because, once again, he identifies as that. But I want to begin today's show with a um, a financial issue that I think eventually delves into the issue of culture and some of the cultural issues we're talking about. Um, First Republic Bank is the third, you know, big bank. And I'm using that term generically. The third big bank to go under um, this year. We had uh, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and First Republic Bank. Guess what those three banks had in common? I mean, they had a lot in common. They made some pretty uh, bad decisions in hedging investments. Uh, their portfolio was too heavily weighted um, toward the likelihood that interest rates would stay low. So they made some management decisions that um, that caused them a lot of pain and grief. In other words, when you're investing in, when you take the, um, the deposits and you invest those deposits in um, financial instruments, they invested in things that were far more rewarding if interest rates had stayed um, suppressed, the raising interest rates and increased financial hardship within, and they weren't able to recover. So, and I don't want to go down the road of, you know, I mean, we talked about quantitative tightening, quantitative easing, and, and you know, all the decisions. Anyway, they, they made some bad decisions in relation to their investment portfolios at Signature, at Silicon Valley Bank, and now at First Republic Bank. But but here's one of the interesting parts of um, of all three of those banks. All three of those banks were celebrated in 2021 as being kind of, um, my word, not theirs, cutting edge in decarbonizing the economy. In other words, they were not going to finance. First Republic actually went on the record and said, we're not going to finance uh, projects that include a fossil fuel investment. Silicon Valley Bank didn't say that, but their strategy implied that was the case. Uh, so, skip that signature. Um, uh, yes, signature in New York. They implied um, the same thing. But First Republic is the first large U.S. bank to stop fossil fuel lending. But I mean, it's on the record. Wall Street Journal, um, December 7, 2021. You ready? On November 29, First Republic Bank became the first large U.S. bank to announce a commitment to to ending all fossil fuel companies, the only one of the U.S. largest 25 banks to do so. This commitment marks a watershed moment for large banks, climate action, and establishes the important precedent that fossil fuels can and must be phased out of banks lending and all financing activities. So, um, once again, Silicon Valley Bank, a little bit unique in their relationship with the tech industry, um didn't have a lot of fixed assets, a lot of cash flow, a lot of startup businesses, uh kind of a niche bank, but a big bank. A big bank with a lot of deposits and there's a lot of money flowing freely um in and out of Silicon Valley, a lot of investment, a lot of hedge fund, a lot of uh, venture capital. Um and they, they were the bank of preference in that world. But they they made it known that they were not interested in financing projects that that involve fossil fuels Same thing with signature bank. And now we've got First Republic Bank. Going on the record, their board uh, affirming the CEO's decision that as of December 7, 2021, they are not going to finance any projects that involve or include um, fossil fuel. So, who buys or who is uh, forced into taking over um, First Republic Bank? JP Morgan. Um, Jamie Dimon is the CEO of JP Morgan. And I knew there was a, a blip out there somewhere and I want to play this this morning before we get too far down the road here is um JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, um exchanging with um member of the squad Rashida tashib uh Tlaib. I'm sorry Talib Rashida Talib is a member of the squad um she is interrogating not 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 you know not having a debate or a discussion she is basically interrogating um JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon about fossil fuels and I want you to hear this now once again First Republic went on the record and stopped lending money to any venture that involved um fossil fuel JP Morgan as of today owns First Republic of um First Republic Bank one of the 25 largest banks and the only bank to go on the record and say now a lot of other banks have made the statement but they made a commitment that denied loans that include um, fossil fuels. So here's um, JP Morgan CEO now in control of first Republic who once again decided to not play ball in the fossil fuel lending space. Let's go there, Josh. You ready?
1: Or
2: uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. So no new fossil fuel production starting today. That's so that's like zero. So I would like to ask all of you and go down the list because again, you all have agreed to doing this. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond. Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably re- re- take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt extreme debt because of student loan debt and you're out there criticizing it. Miss Frazier, how about you?
0: I- okay, there's Jamie Dimon saying, when asked by um, Squadster, <laughs> Rashida Tlaib, whether they would um, stop lending in the fossil fuel space, he says no, and that would be the road to hell for America. Jamie Dimon understands it. I mean, Jamie Dimon is probably committed to green energy, clean energy. Jamie Dimon is probably fully interested in um, what works? What doesn't work? Where does our bank need to invest money? Where do, where do we need to finance uh, projects? But when Rashida Talib hears very bluntly from America's banker Jamie Dimon that you know they're they're going to they're not going to stop financing fossil fuel production, somebody he basically said after the fact in an interview it was ridiculous. It's a ridiculous proposition. It's a ridiculous question. And the road to hell for America was exactly what I intended to say. So I mean, it, it reeks of irony that First Republic Bank is now under the control of Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan. And in December and no, in November, they took the action. It was reported in December. I mean, they basically said that we are no longer going to finance projects in the fossil fuel space. Um, Silicon Valley Bank stood by those comments. Signature Bank stood by those comments. So we got three major bank failures in 2023, but I'm sure there are a lot of other things they have in common. They probably mismanaged some of the hedging of, of raising rates. But at surface, at the surface, the three or the one thing the three banks seem to have most in common is their disdain, their distaste, their reluctance, um, their denying to fund or finance any project involving fossil fuel. Well, Republic First, Republic Bank today. Is no longer a bank. There is no such bank as First Republic Bank. It is now a subsidiary of J.P. Morgan, of which Jamie Dimon is the CEO. And, um, and it's, you know, I, I don't know what Dimon's first action will be. I would imagine Dimon's first action will be um, whoever those whoever those um, uh, whoever those executives were that made those decisions to to stop investing in fossil fuel production. Give them a severance package to get them out of the door. It, the absurdity. I mean, Diamond basically says, in a far more polite way than I do, the decarbonizing of our economy in a decade is a pipe dream. It's lunacy. It's insanity. And I think that's where it gets into the culture war. The, the reality of, of, how do you say this, the reality of the insanity, the reality of the ludicrous that um that, that we've got banks out there failing, and as part of their failure what was a refusing to finance in the fossil fuel space. I didn't say that's the only reason Silicon Valley Bank failed. I didn't say that's the only reason Signature Bank failed. I didn't say that's the only reason First Republic Bank failed. I am saying that this is rich in irony, that First Republic Bank is now a subsidiary of J.P. Morgan. First Republic Bank was the first bank in America that said we're not financing in that space. And Jamie, Jamie Diamond basically said, well, um, if we don't, and if we stop investing in fossil fuel production, it is indeed the road to hell for America. Let's take a call. Somebody's there.
3: We have Breeze. You're on, Breeze.
4: Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Kenny. Have you ever met a, a person? How many bankers you figure you've gone in your life? A hundred?
0: Yeah, somewhere there about, yeah. I don't remember one, Breeze. If I did, I'd probably not go back and see him again. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. eight four three six six one zero nine three seven Our number. I mean, I've tried to play out debt ceiling scenario A, B, C, D in my head. Uh, actually, I actually have a friend who works in the uh, he works in the government, and he works close to that side of the government. I may try to run him down and see what he's willing to say publicly or not. Love to get him as a guest on our show, but he kind of works in that world of government finance and. What happens if this doesn't work what happens if if that work but i want to go back to what something breeze talked about so you know i was chastised personally i'm not offended i'm not upset i'm not bothered um it didn't uh, i'm not a medical expert so what do i know but i remember during the covid pandemic when it was obvious to me that the the health care community were not calling the shots uh, but these shots were remember yesterday josh when we talked about these institutional power centers in America, and I'm talking about uh, you know we talked about Wall Street a second ago, the media, uh, the universities, Hollywood, um, now the military. I mean, nearly all of our institutional power centers in America today are liberally controlled. I mean, that's that's not really a debate. I mean, that we we kind of sort of know that uh, to be the case. But I can remember. I mean, I remember for a while being guarded about, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You better be quiet. And information kept coming in, and information. Kept coming in, and you know, I would read the Wall Street Journal. I'd read the New York Times. I'd read the the Washington Post. I'd read Politico. I'd read NBC News website. I'd read Fox News website. I would go watch MSNBC for thirty minutes and and Fox for an hour, trying to filter. I mean, trying to make heads or tails of where where the debate needs to be. But there was a moment in time that I realized this is not being driven by the healthcare community. I mean, this is being driven by these institutional power centers and if you remember or you recollect if you listen to the show um th- there was a moment that I rem- I, mean, I don't know when it was I don't know what time during the pandemic it was but when I read something about four members had left four members of the Biden economic team had left BlackRock and gone to work at the White House and that was kind of the aha moment I remember saying to myself okay let me see how many shares of Pfizer BlackRock owns let me see how many shares of Moderna that BlackRock owned, Johnson and Johnson that BlackRock owned. Um, let me see how involved BlackRock is and Vanguard would be another company. Let me see how involved they are in um, you know, the 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 production, or excuse me, the research production and and you know, who gets a shot and who doesn't. Who demands that this person gets a shot and this person does not? And that was kind of the aha moment. I mean, it was the um, it was the G.I. Joe with the kung fu grip moment because I didn't have any proof that those who had left Black Rock gone to work at the White House, left Vanguard, gone to work at the White House. I had no proof that they were ma- or had any, um, any any malicious intent. Uh, I I couldn't prove that, but but I'm convinced beyond a doubt they were the ones driving the train. It was not doctors, it was not medical professionals, it was not hospitals, it was not caregivers, it was these institutional power centers uh wall street had a hand in this um the media had a big hand in this uh to some degree universities research universities had a hand in this i mean every actor from hollywood said uh, do this i talked about the military a second ago remember those who were going to be kicked out of the military if you didn't get a vaccination and um so i don't believe it was ever driven by the healthcare community. I think it was always a political issue. It was a cultural issue. Um, it was an issue. I mean, I, I want to bet you I'll go far down the conspiracy road with you. If you'll bear with me, I think it was to see how subservient the public would be, how conditioned to conform we'd really become over the long haul. And it was an embarrassment. As far as I'm concerned, uh, we've nicknamed Josh, no shot, Josh, he left a job that required a vaccine. Josh is a young, healthy guy. I got to believe he said, man, I don't need the vaccine. I'm a young, healthy guy. I'm extremely low risk to a respiratory virus, and I'm not going to take an experimental medicine and force it in my body. Now, some made that decision uh, for a lot of different reasons. I respect that decision. But I go back to the text when someone kind of challenged me at the gym one day. They're in the healthcare community, and they said, you're being reckless and careless and irresponsible by not directing our listeners to or encouraging our listeners To go get vaccinated and I said I'm convinced that the smart thing to do is make them let that call themselves but but in the in the conversation he said you're kind of getting in my lane now I mean you're you're a former politician who hosts a radio show what do you know about vaccines to to which my response in a nanosecond was you have no idea how far in my lane you are And, and I do believe I think the medical industry has been corrupted by COVID and I think the reason the medical industry has been corrupted by COVID is the medical industry took the money and ran. I mean, there were, there were enormous amounts of funds available if you participated in, um, let, let's be honest, the scheme of COVID vaccines. We know now that, that a lot of what was said was dishonest, untrue, uh, un, unfounded. Did we know then and do it anyway? That's the question. I mean, I understand making mistakes and after the fact, realized that, hey, man, we made some mistakes, but we we learned on the fly. I, I don't buy that. I don't think they were learning on the fly. I think they knew damn well the vaccine was nowhere near as effective. It was going to have a lot of side effects, but there was enormous amounts of money to be made with the government's blessing. And that's what we did. But that, you know, I'm convinced of that. So, so, Breeze, to your question about um, did the hospitals try to kill people? Did the doctors try to kill? Of course not. I mean, I, I don't buy that for a second. I still believe that hospitals and doctors are there to try and save lives. but once they saw this this institutional power center align, they, they just kind of got on board. And I do think they made some careless, some irresponsible, some reckless decision. And I do believe that there should be a high degree of regret. and I think there should be some investigating and, and what some of these healthcare providers did and why they did, what they were they making honest mistakes, or was it all about the money? I mean, I've always argued money's the answer. Now was the question. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843 661 our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. We have Uncle Boudreaux. Boudreaux, you are live.
5: Good morning, kid. You know, uh, uh, when I hear these stories about these these progressive, incompetent banks being taken over by people that refuse to to, to follow that philosophy I tell you it's, it's like Atlas shrugged uh, living out in front of us the the, the great novel by Ayn Rand. Uh, and ran and it's just it's fascinating to see what happens with that uh, I, I appreciate you I, I'm sure you explained it before but I had not heard why you called Josh no shot Josh. So I'm glad you you put that in there. I'm sure you mentioned it before, and I missed it. Uh, One day I want you to maybe elaborate on uh, your obsession with uh, G.I. Joe with the Kongfu grip. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but Ken, um, you remember the old saying, I know you do because I I just know, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach him to fish, you're feeding him the rest of his life. You're familiar with that, correct? I am. Okay, well... And that's good that's, that's good philosophy. But, you know, sometimes good philosophy can be applied a little different. And it's still true, but it <laughs> doesn't work out the same. Because, you know, if you buy a man a plane ticket, he can fly for a day. You throw him out of that plane, he'll fly the rest of his life. And uh, same application, different results. And I think this progressive world is about to jump out of a plane if they're not careful. And uh, hopefully there will be some folks like that Diamond fella to. Pick up the pieces in a lot of the areas of our uh, of our society. The the culture war, as you said, you're right. Culture war goes beyond the bedroom and the genitals. Okay, it's, it's a lot of things about this culture war that uh, we're we're uh, we're struggling with, and um, I guess we do have to pick our battles. But by God, it's hard to find one that ain't worth fighting for. Ain't it, Ken?
0: It is. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. The I mean, it's kind of interesting. The GI Joe with the kung fu grip reference comes from. Remember. It, the movie, uh, trading places with Eddie Murphy and Eddie Murphy's a pawn of the Duke brothers game. The Duke brothers are these big financial, uh, they run a financial firm. I mean, it would be you know, Jamie diamond of today. I'm mean, the Duke brother Mortimer. And I forget what his brother's name were, but anyway, uh, they, they were very much insiders. Uh, it was a firm that it was regarded and respected and revered on wall street. Um, and all of a sudden, this, this this black guy who doesn't know anything about finance or investing is a pawn in their game. And the, can we trade places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy? Can we swap places and still be okay? I mean, it's rich guys playing around with poor people is what it is. Uh, that's kind of the essence of the story. I would imagine there's some racial overtones there with the Duke brothers being white guys, wealthy guys, you know, financiers. And then you've got Eddie Murphy, kind of a, um, a low-level street criminal but, but they wanted to convince themselves that we could take Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd's a p- product of his environment. And if we put him on the street, he'll revert to crime and drugs just like Eddie Murphy was, uh, the life he was living. So anyway, that they, they trade places. Maybe they may be trading places. Uh, Eddie Murphy becomes a, a junior executive at Duke and Duke. Um, Dan Aykroyd goes on the street. And during one of the scenes, they're, they're talking about should we buy, should we short the orange juice industry or not? And um, I mean, they, they had enough influence to kind of corner the market and drive the market in one direction or another. And Eddie Murphy says, and I, you know, it's been years ago, so forgive me if I get a little bit of this incorrect. But Murphy says, I wouldn't buy right now. And the Duke brothers look at one another. You wouldn't? Why? I mean, all the uh, all the empirical data says buy now. And Eddie Murphy says something to the effect of, "Well, I'm just telling you, it's right before Christmas." And, and Mama's a little bit nervous because she's wondering whether she's going to have the money to buy, you know, little Johnny, the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, he's been asking. And, and what, what he's doing is placing a not an educated or, or, or theoretical answer to the problem, but more a real world solution. Um, Eddie Murphy didn't learn that at the Harvard School of Business or the Stanford School of Business. Eddie Murphy lived that on the street. And Eddie Murphy was saying he thought the price of orange juice was going down because there were a lot of anxious moms out there worried about how to provide whatever it was their kid wanted for Christmas. And this particular kid wanted a GI Joe with a Kung Fu grip. And I've always said my, my understanding of the economy is not academic. It's not philosophical. It is putting a key in a door every morning in 360 by 120 buildings, hoping you could figure out a way to keep your head above water and survive. And, I mean, that, that's the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip analogy I like to use. I didn't learn the economy in a um, at a seminar on a Saturday morning at a Marriott Courtyard or a Hilton Garden Inn where they give you an apple, a ham sandwich, and a Diet Pepsi. I mean, I lived it. G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip is, and I just always remember that scene because it's so relatable to me. I don't have an academic understanding of the economy. I don't have a scholarly understanding of the economy Um, but, but I do understand it from having lived in it and tried to thrive and survive and succeed in that way. So when I say GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip, it's kind of a, I think his name might've been Billy Ray Valentine for some stupid reason. I'm thinking that might've been his name. Billy Ray Valentine was the character that Eddie Murphy played that once again, was kind of a two bit street criminal ends up in, um, in the, um, in the hollow chambers of Duke and Duke. And Dan Aykroyd, what was I mean? Dan Aykroyd would have been the Stanford School of Business guy that was um that was also a pawn of the game of these two rich financiers and investment experts. Um, I can't remember his name, but I think um, it was Billy Ray Valentine, if I'm not mistaken. I just googled it. That is correct. Okay, Billy Ray Valentine, and um and once again he says, "Don't buy yet, don't buy. Why not, Billy?" And he says, "Because mom's nervous, because mom's worried about having enough money to buy." Johnny and I'm making some of these not I don't remember obviously it's been years and years and years ago but but there's a scene when he says you know don't buy now because moms are nervous about having the money to buy their kid the GI Joe with the kung fu grip and that always resonated with me and I've always referred to that when I ran for lieutenant to the governor and we talk about the economy and economic activity and affairs and and I'd always say guys I mean I'll give you an example my daughter takes her last test today at the Dalton School of Business and my daughter's done well. She, she's trying to have a, a, you know, she wants to go to law school. I've convinced her, don't don't drop out of the school of business to get a law degree. Um, because she wants to, you know, she's thinking about, well, I, do I really need all these business classes if I'm going to try to go to law school? And I said, there's a stack of resumes head high with law degrees. There's a stack of resumes knee high with law degrees and a finance background. You know, you cre- create exclusivity in, in the marketplace. But anyway, she's... um. She's preparing for her last finance class um, today, and I look at her material and I look online and I, I see all the same terminology that I've grown to know over the years, but I have no understanding academically of. I mean, she's got an economics professor and a and an accounting professor and a and a finance professor and a statistics professor, and I've never had a professor on any of that, but I figured out a way to to learn it. Uh, you know, experience is expensive. Yeah, experience is expensive, and I've learned some pretty exper- uh, expensive lessons in my experienced in my in my experienced business life. So, um, Boudreau, that's why G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip is something that I've grown fond of using um, over the years. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I do want to dig back into this culture war because I think there's an interesting story. Because some of us will try to convince ourselves that we are you know, a worthy adversary or worthy foe of these institutional power centers that these, um, these prestigious, we talked about Stanford a second ago. We talked about Harvard a second ago. I mean, Duke and Duke is a makeup is a, is a make-believe company and in a make-believe movie, but I mean, there are companies like that Goldman Sachs, BlackRock. We've talked a lot about, um, Vanguard, JP Morgan. I mean, they, they, these are unbelievably influential institutions and financial powerhouses that do help shape the debate and and my problem today is the debate we're not having we're not having a conversation about things that i think we must if we are to progress as a country we're we're basically censoring people who are able to articulate vivek ramaswamy i mean he did a phenomenal job yesterday or sunday on meet the press of pushing back on chuck todd and todd came ready willing and able to say gender is a spectrum and, and I mean I, I sense that Chuck Todd didn't want any part of the sex conversation the XY chromosome the the YY chromosome you know the the scientific fact that there's a biological male and a biological female Todd wanted to go down the road of gender that there's this um the, the this social conditioning that has happened in relation to gender there's an exact an inexactness about um gender okay um Vivek, I'll give you that I mean he didn't say this but he inferred I'll give you that that sex is scientific. That there's a biological male and a biological female. But I'm not talking about sex, Vivek. I'm talking about gender and gender as a kind of a social condition and a conformity or not. And um and you know that's that's when you know there's not going to be a legitimate debate. And that's because these once again institutional power centers such as NBC News have stacked the deck. Eight four three. 6610937. Take a break back at a few. Okay, for accuracy's sake, it was Billy Ray Valentine. That was Eddie Murphy. Dan Aykroyd was Lewis Winthorpe the Third. The brothers were Mortimer Duke and Randolph Duke. And Jamie Lee Curtis was smoking hot. I'll just leave it there. Okay. I don't remember her name, um, but she got everybody's attention. Um so we'll leave trading places. Uh, we're talking about trading places and coming to America. Josh and I uh, were, uh, yeah, co- coming to America is one of the great, great scenes in the history of motion picture. Uh, you can have To Kill a Mockingbird. You can have Gone with the Wind. You can have all these, these, um, you know, th- these, uh, what was it, Albert Hitchcock and Psycho. I mean, you know, the ones that um, that they believe set the times and were, were, were you know, just um, great artistic bodies of work. I'll take Smokey the Bandit. And um, and coming to the barbershop soon, and coming to America, that is artistic genius as far as um as I'm concerned. But we got all the names right. Somebody texted me a second ago: Lewis Winthorpe the Third, Randolph, and uh, Mortimer Duke, and Billy Ray Valentine, and Jamie Lee Curtis was um a central figure in that movie. But that's where Gi Joe with the Kung Fu grip comes from. And I think we've thought about playing that scene, but Murphy uses some of his stand-up language in that scene. And Eddie Murphy's stand-up language, in case you didn't know, isn't suitable for terrestrial radio. We'll just leave it there. Uh, if it were satellite radio, it would be a different story. But when Eddie Murphy ad-libs, you know, and they give him some creative freedoms and flexibilities, he normally reverts to his um, his stand-up shtick, which can get quite colorful. 843-661-0937. Something tells me that I need to go back and play. And we may do that in the next hour. Um, The Chuck Todd Vivek Ramaswamy um, discussion, not argument, discussion, and how Vivek Ramaswamy, a, a trained biologist or an educated biologist, a guy who sold a biotech firm for hundreds of millions of dollars, pushed back with a great deal of sophistication and articulation with what Todd was trying to lead Uh, the conversation in a particular direction or not and it, it really goes back to it reverts back to so ramaswamy goes on i mean he would be a second tier maybe even third tier presidential candidate i mean if you're looking if you're handicapping the republican field you've got trump and desantis who most believe are the top tier candidates and then you've got um nikki haley and you've got um the eventual announcement of tim scott uh they would be second tier candidates I mean, the the Republican primary voter thinks a lot of Nikki Haley, by and large, they think a lot of Tim Scott, by and large, probably think more of Tim than they do, than they do Nikki because of Nikki's complicated relationship with former President Trump. And then you've got the Asa Hutchinson's, you've got the, I mean, Chris Christie would be in that Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and by that I mean high name ID, um, most Republican voters have formed somewhat of an opinion about that person. Then you got Asa Hutchinson, who's doing it for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't have anything else to do. You've got, um, and then you've got Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think has made a significant impact in the Republican primary thus far. Um, if he can get his hands on a couple of hundred million dollars, I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy can get in the 20s. I mean, I'm convinced of that. I don't think there's any way... For him to get to where Trump and DeSantis are. But I think Ramaswamy can absolutely elevate his status or stature to where Haley or Scott or somebody like that because he makes a lot of sense. And he debates in a very forceful but respectful way. He gets his point across in a in a very understandable but sophisticated um way. And and I'm I'm glad he's in the race. I'm glad he's part of the fold. I'm glad that he's doing some of the uh, some of the fighting on behalf of the culture war in America. He's talking about wokeism and political correctness and you know some of the ESG, DEI sort of elements uh, embedded in corporate America. And I think he's a voice of reason when it comes to some of the issues relating to the culture war. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few moments. I'm gonna go back to this. We played it yesterday. I wanna play it again. Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Republican presidential candidate in studio, and... I mean, one of the things that we didn't mention yesterday that we probably should have, Todd says, and I quote, there's a lot of scientific research that says gender is a spectrum and that sex is not binary. Ain't no scientific research that says anything close to that. I mean, there's some social commentary. I mean, there's some liberal opinion, but there's no science that says gender is a spectrum. Let's go back to, um, Josh, you ready? I want to play this. This is on Vivek Ramaswamy yesterday, excuse me, Sunday, on Meet the Press. Genital mutilation or chemical castration through puberty blockers. you calling for the it of that, but how do you know it's that? Again, how do you know, are, are you confident that you know that gender
2: uh, is uh, as binary as you're describing it? Are you confident that I it am. isn't a spectrum? I am. Uh, you know I'm. this as a scientist? Well,
0: Well, here we go with bully ads. You can't play a 30. anyway, I don't want to do that. I could tell it was going to be complicated. New York post had a. Anyway, Josh, I'm sorry. We got a bully ad in the middle of a 40 second um, clip. Got to pay bills. I guess Murdoch's empire has to pay Tucker and uh, Dominion. So they've got to figure out a way to make uh, another extra buck. But, but you can hear the flavor of the interview. And Todd basically says to Ramaswamy, um, are you a scientist? Well, he is a scientist. I mean, he has a degree in biology. He started a biotech firm. He's made a lot of money. He's he's highly educated. I mean, he fits the um he fits the bill as someone who would have the ability to inform himself about the issue at hand. And and that's the debate. I mean and, and the point I want to make is not whether Ramaswamy got the best of Todd or Todd got the best of Ramaswamy. The point is there was a legitimate debate. I mean that there was a conservative American um Forcefully addressing what a member of the media casually articulates as truth, and when when Todd, I mean, who is Chuck Todd to suggest that Ramaswamy? He knows more about science than uh, than Ramaswamy. But it really goes back to the to the fact that we're not allowing these debates, and we're doing America a great disservice by not having someone like Chuck Todd, um, you know, question a presidential candidate about why he believes. In certain things, and and when the liberal media decides that somebody gets the best of one of their one of their kindred spirits or or, or fraternity members, it's it you know watch what I, I mean watch what happens to Ramaswamy in the next week or two. I mean I, I predict he'll see a bit of a rise in the poll, and you'll see media attacks. The next thing you know, there will be some twenty three year old girl who says, "Let me tell you what Vivek Ramaswamy did to me when we were at Harvard or we were at Yale or what." I mean that's coming. I mean, nobody—he didn't bother anybody, and it doesn't matter. But all of a sudden, he articulates, you know, a point of view in a very understandable and aggressive fashion, and the liberal media says he must be dealt with accordingly. That's what liberals do. They'd rather not debate the issue. And and we made a point yesterday to talk a little bit about the culture wars, and and Jeff was asking me, you know, did I think the Republicans were smart in making culture wars a part of the, the presidential campaign? I don't think the liberals have left us any choice. I mean, I went back and looked yesterday, and I told you before I went off the air, I want to go back and see when Prop 8 was. Prop 8 was the state of California basically saying no to gay marriage. I mean, this would have been 2008. So 15 years ago, one of the most liberal states in America voted, I think it was about 52 to 48, 52.5 to 47.5. The state of California in, in in voting in favor of prop 8 basically said that marriage is a man and a woman california not montana not wyoming not south carolina but california 15 years ago voted in favor of, of um traditional marriage obama ran in 08 in you know supporting traditional marriage so you know what has happened i mean if we found that much about science i mean do we know that much more today? about science than we did. No, we've disallowed the debate. We've not allowed a debate to be had about gay marriage, about abortion, uh, about transgenderism or gender dysphoria. And at some point in time, when somebody said yesterday, um, you know, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is where conservative America has to rise up and, and and state its case. It doesn't matter unless we're allowed to have these debates. And I'm not trying to discourage. I'm not trying to... Um, to to, to de incentivize anybody from going out and arguing your points of view with merit. But it looks to me like we're at a point in America today where if there if there's the threat of having a debate that damages what these um these these influential centers of power have agreed on, where well, we're just not going to have that debate. Ramaswamy mopped the floor with Chuck Todd. I mean it's pretty obvious. Not because I see the world in a closer alignment to Ramaswamy, but Chuck Todd said as a, as a journalist, there's a lot of scientific scientific information out there that says gender's a spectrum. Well, there, there is no scientific information. I mean, there, there's liberal thought leaders, that there are um, academic research projects, but there's no scientific um, information or scientific data that says gender's a spectrum. But, but you wonder how we get there. How do we get to a place where the esteemed host of Meet the Press says to a presidential candidate in challenging fashion. But Mr. Ramaswamy, there's a lot of scientific evidence out there that says gender's a spectrum. When there is no scientific information out there that says gender is a spectrum, it's because we're not allowing these debates to take place. And if you're Chuck Todd, why would you want that debate? I mean, when I asked Jeff yesterday, do you want... To allow a twelve year old to enter into a medical contract have a, a sex change operation without parental consent? And and Jeff kind of hem and hauled a second. I think eventually he said no. But why are why has Ramaswamy asked these questions? Why is Joe Biden, when given the opportunity to sit down with President Biden or anybody who believes in this gender dysphoric nonsense, that that this human depravity that we call gender dysphoria, why would somebody not ask as a leading question that Do you believe a 12-year-old should be able to enter into a medical— I mean, let's get liberals on the record. I mean, if they believe gender dysphoria is not a mental illness, that gender dysphoria is to be normalized, that kids are to be accepted uh, by by the gender of which they identify with, and if they choose without parental consent to have the, the operation that changes their sex from their biological to the one they identify as, then why are liberals not asked that question? I mean, if the media pushes back on Ramaswamy by saying, "Are you a scientist?" I mean, he happens to be one, but but are you a scientist? You see where I'm headed. I mean, the the reason we've got the reason we've gone from 2008, the state of California voting against same-sex marriage, to 2023 not allowing a debate on gender dysphoria, is these institutional powers, this monolith, this cathedral, that this conspiracy theory that I have that there is um. There are forces at work to disallow legitimate discourse and debate about issues that are centrally important to America's prosperity, existence, and, uh, and future. And, and I, I don't know what to do. I can't change that. I mean the, the only people that I listen to that matter to me aren't on the air anymore. I mean, I don't listen to anybody. I mean, I read a lot. I try to study some of these journalists who have uh, invested some effort in better understanding whatever issue they're reporting on But the only people in media that said anything interesting to me were Rush Limbaugh Tucker Carlson. Now, you can say, yeah, of course you are. I mean, you're conservative. There were conservatives. I mean, you know, they they, they fed you the Kool-Aid, so to speak. But that really has very little to do with it. They said things that interested me. The Ramaswamy Chuck Todd back and forth, I found very stimulating. I found very interesting. But you don't get any of that. How can someone... How can a member of Congress come on a a television or radio show and advocate for gender dysphoria and that person not say, so you believe a 12-year-old could be born of the wrong sex, has a right to enter into a medical contract, to have that correction made without the parent or guardian of that child being informed? I mean, how many times have you heard a liberal politician ask that question? I've never heard that question asked of a liberal politician, and it's the only question to ask. I mean, you know, Chuck Todd says there's scientific information out there that says gender is a spectrum. I spent about two hours yesterday. Guys, there, there is no scientific information. Once again, a lot of social commentary, a lot of academic exercising, a lot of theorizing and hypothesizing what could or what could not be. There is no science that says the only science out there is the chromosomal reality of male and female. I mean, that's pretty scientifically researched. And we landed, hey, there are these different chromosomes. One designates a male, one designates a female. But Chuck Todd, give him credit. Chuck knows how to be a misleading journalist. Chuck Todd did not say sex. It was gender, because gender's gotten squishy. Why has gender gotten squishy? Because we've allowed gender to get squishy. Why we allow gender to get squishy? Because we've not debated some of these important issues. When somebody says Um, you know, five years ago that gender, and I'm paraphrasing here, gender is squishy. Some member of the media just said, what do you mean by that? I mean, what do you mean gender is squishy? How many of you know that gender dysphoria was a mental illness, but now it's not? Some government agency years and years ago proclaimed gender dysphoria a mental illness. Now it's not. How much debate? I mean, how much debate are you aware of that we had on the issue of gender dysphoria? Who decides? within the federal government that that gender dysphoria is no longer designated i mean what science did we what what, what revelation in science did we find that let it, it's not that It's nothing there is no scientific research it's all this power center it's all these and i'm talking about once again I, i'm beating the dead horse how many corporate ceos of fortune 500 companies would condemn a child having a sex change operation I mean, you should if, if a child has a sex change operation without parental consent and you're the CEO of a fortune 500 in a company, do you have a, an ethical obligation to enter into that debate, especially if you're fortune 500 a company in the healthcare field? I mean, let's say you run a company that researches, uh, you know, drugs. I mean, let's say you're one of the leading pharmaceutical companies in America and you're the CEO. So we got to believe you're somewhat versed in that's, probably a bad assumption to make. Um, you're probably more about making money than you are. The, the, the analysis that required to, is this drug good? Is this drug not good? You know, when do we release this drug anyway? Um, and that frustrates me, but it really and truly frustrates me because I don't know where we go from here. But if we're not going to have a debate, once again, proposition eight in California passed 52 and a half to 47 and a half in California, they decided 15 years ago that traditional marriage was the way the world should work. They it got ruled, it got um, it got challenged in court, got overruled. But the people of California, mind you, but I mean, the people of California said, "Thank you, but no thank you to same-sex marriage." And the courts intervened and said, "Well, I mean, the people can't decide that." And you got equal equal protection in the law. You got a lot of, I mean, it got into legal jumbo and or legal mumbo jumbo Supreme Court, and I think 2015. So so, how do we go from '08 to '15? How do we go from 08, California, the voters of California saying no to same-sex marriage, and in two fifteen or sixteen, I can't remember, it's fifteen or sixteen, the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, basically says we're going to redefine marriage. How do you do that? I mean, how do you have these cultural advancements or changes? Let me use a better word: changes. How do you have these cultural, these monumental cultural changes in a country like America without discourse and debate? You do it because you control. And once again, I said yesterday, and I'll stick to my guns, there is there is scoring debate points. Matt Walsh, I am a woman. I mean, that's very humorous. It's enlightening. It's funny. It's, um, it, it shines a bright light on the insanity or absurdity of the political left. But while we're scoring debate points, they're imposing a worldview. They're imposing an agenda. Um, they're successfully implementing policy changes that have dramatic and monumental consequence impact and effect on our culture, our society, our politics, our economy, and we're doing very little to stop it. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. We have with us a Republican strategist, Trump 2020 campaign advisor, Mark Serrano. Mark, good morning. How are you, sir?
2: I'm well, sir. Good morning, Ken.
0: Thank you. Thank you for for joining us this morning. So, Joe Biden addressed, uh, I guess, the Democrat National Committee Friday, and uh, as usual, blamed the MAGA Republicans. That's his choice of word. I guess they've poll tested some of that language uh, in attempting to undo the progress he's made in the United States. As a Republican strategist, where are we, not just in relation to the primary? but also a potential matchup against President Biden. Well,
2: I'd say I mean, obviously, uh, Joe Biden was talking to his own people at the Democrat National Committee on Friday night, but he was also speaking to the media and speaking to the country at large. And their decision clearly is to demonize MAGA Republicans. The irony there is, I think every time they demonize MAGA Republicans, the, the ranks of MAGA Republicans grow. And it's largely because of their experience in the last two years under this administration. You know, they've seen their grocery bills climb, their utility bills climb. They've seen their 401k uh, drop in value dramatically. Uh, And those are real problems for real people. This this is a a strategy on the part of the Biden team to basically demonize Republicans and conservatives, because that, they believe, is what's going to win him another term, is by turning out – Democrats, just going with a strategy focused on their base and hoping and wishing that the economy has some sort of recovery by uh, November of next year.
0: Mark, I'm a fellow Republican. I've held office in South Carolina as a Republican. We're running against an 81-year-old guy. While the country has a 75% of Americans believe we're on the wrong track, uh, the majority of Americans, including the majority of Democrats, don't want this guy to run for re-election. Why is it still a dogfight? I mean, why, why? I mean, if if uh, and those are some of the macros. I mean, I I would love to run against an eighty-one year old Democrat, with with seventy-five percent of Americans <laughs> believe when they're on the wrong track, and the majority of people in America don't want him to run again. But as a Republican strategist, does it not frustrate all of us that this should be a layup election? Well, but th- that's not the only opponent. An
2: eighty-one year old. If that's all it was, Ken, boy, it would be just a a cakewalk. It's not because the other opponent is the national media. Uh, It's social media platforms, such as Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, Google and others, they are all, as we saw in the 2020 election, they are all aligned against conservatives. So that's a massive, massive opponent that are all aligned, and by the way, using the power of government against their enemies, using the FBI, using the Department of Justice, so I wish it was as simple as a, a matchup against a, a, a befuddled old 81-year-old who really doesn't have his full ca- uh, cognitive capabilities. But it also has taken our country in a direction that the vast majority of Americans do not agree with. Just like as you were just speaking, again, very articulately uh, about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and, and uh, Chuck Todd and their debate over gender, you know they'd rather be talking about those things on the left Because they don't have any record to run on. When Joe Biden released his uh, campaign video last week announcing his reelection, he did not talk about one single accomplishment from his administration. So all they can do is malign the right and they have the media and they have social media platforms. They have government bureaucrats backing them up to attack conservatives.
0: So, Mark, final question. If that's the case, and I agree with everything you just said, I accept that the media and all these institutional power centers are are, 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 are very influential in directing the debate one way or another, but, but is there a marketing disadvantage that we have? In other words, is MAGA, Biden uses MAGA, the Democrats use MAGA, I prefer America first. I mean, is there some house cleaning we can do to make the message of America first more acceptable to the Seinfeld watching independent.
2: Yeah, look, and I, I think that's very, very sharp and wise on your part uh, that we've got to focus on our messaging to our own base. And uh, effectively, the reason why Donald Trump won in 2016 is because Washington, D.C. and the elites abandon hardworking Americans, abandon people who uh, get up every morning and, and uh, uh, fight hard for this country, for their families and work hard for them. We got a message to those people. We have to focus on the manufacturing jobs that we had regained under the Trump administration and have lost again since. We have to focus on our energy sector. How about being number one in energy in the world again, which we were just two and a half years ago? We have to focus on those things that unite us uh, as conservatives and Republicans first, but also focusing on independent voters, soft support Democrats. And the way to do that is to talk basic economics Because that's where Joe Biden and the Democrats are so vulnerable. And we're going to see that this month with this fight over the debt ceiling increase. You know, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in Congress are fighting a great, great fight. Now Joe Biden has already blinked and he's going to go ahead and meet with the Republicans because he's concerned about a default. We need spending cuts. And that's the type of thing that can unite us all.
0: Mark, what do we do? I said last question. This will honestly be the last question. What what do we do about the Republican holdouts? And I'm talking about those that uh, I'll refer to as establishment-oriented Republicans who don't like the flavor, tenor, demeanor of President Trump. Um, and in all honesty, probably don't like the voters that he brings along uh, with him to the dance. But but how do we collaborate? How do we coalesce around? I mean, it looks like Trump, but it could be DeSantis. Could something, it could be someone else. But, but I'm concerned... That that ten to twelve percent of Republican dependable Republican uh, voters will take a pass if this is an America first oriented uh, Republican, you know, uh, general campaign, general election campaign. What well, what do you say to those twelve percent of Republicans? And I'm making up that number. I don't know if that's the exact number, but but you know who I'm referring to.
2: Oh, I know full well who you're referring to. It's the people who want their power back. The people who enjoyed the corruption of Washington. Even Republicans can. The people who enjoyed the corruption of Washington until Donald Trump came along and said, this is not the way that we should be doing business. I, I look, I think that we can fold them all in. And, and the way for us to do that is for them to recognize that we've got a great record to run on from before January of 2021. Uh, and that they, the, the, the idea that they're uncomfortable with Trump's style is really uh, it, it, it's it's really a cover uh, for the fact that they're no longer the ones in power. So we just got to include them. We've got to help them understand that that we had a great record. For, forget style. Let's talk about substance. Let's talk about a record. Let's match it up against Joe Biden for the last two and a half year. Look, two and a half years. Most of those people you're talking about uh, are major donors that have sort of aligned with DeSantis. But you know what? A lot of them are second guessing that move now because although DeSantis has got a good record and he's tough in front of the media, you know, Donald Trump is the guy who has stood over across the table from Xi Jinping. Uh, and from Vladimir Putin, and he can bring stability back to America. So I think we have to talk about fundamental economics. We have to talk about the stability of us in the world. My goodness, Ken, we're talking about potential nuclear war. It's, it's, I mean, in, in our lifetimes, that hasn't been discussed since, uh, since you know, the mid-'80s. You know, this, is, this is not the America that we signed up for, and I think we should have to appeal to all Republicans on that basis.
0: Well, explain. Mark, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you, Mark Serrano, who was a Trump campaign strategist in the 2020 uh, presidential elections. You know the, the, these guys, these strategists in particular. I mean, they say the right things. I just don't buy that. I mean, I don't buy that you if you, if you if you sit down with the 12 percent of Republicans who are angry that they lost that sense of power. I mean, that they were in control of the party. They're not in control of the party any longer. They don't like the people that are in control. Uh, control of the party today and and to be honest with you I don't know if there's a leader of the Republican Party today it, it's a little bit of a uh, it's a vacuum I mean when Trump gets beat in 2020 it creates somewhat of a void of power DeSantis uh plays a hand Haley plays a hand uh Trump obviously plays a a big hand in that but but I mean I, I get what Mark is saying and and as you political theorize that that makes the most sense you know sit down with these Republicans who are formerly more influential than they are now, and just say, hey, you know, we're better than the Democrats. I, I just don't buy that. I mean, I, I don't think that works. I don't think there's a scenario that Mitch McConnell gets back on board. I don't think there's a scenario that the Bushes get back on board. I mean, I'm being serious. I I can't fathom a, a scenario where you sit down as an America First Republican and convince Mitch McConnell that this is the direction the party needs to go or sit down with the Bushes or Cheney's and say this is the direction the party needs to go. For God's sake, I mean, they're actively campaigning against the Republican frontrunner. I mean, as we speak, that there, there's about 15% of Republicans who are actively campaigning against the presidential, uh, excuse me, the Republican primary frontrunner. And, and it's not just DeSantis over Trump or Haley over Trump. It's Biden over Trump. I mean, that, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I have great respect for Mark and his opinion and his political acumen. I, I just think those are word salads. I mean, I think you've got to figure out a way to win without McConnell, to win without the Bushes, to win without the Cheneys. How do you do that? I think you pick off some of these independents, some of the working class, black, white, Hispanic, um, some of those who don't understand political influence. They believe this agenda is far better so will we'll far better serve their interest, their livelihood, um, their upward mobility. And I, I just think we're making a strategic mistake in believing. And I've heard several Republican strategists say that basically you sit down with the Mitch McConnell, George Bushes of the world, uh, the Dick Cheney's of the world, the Liz Cheney's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world, and you, you just convince them, hey, we're all Republicans, let's win this thing together. To me, that's a pipe dream. I think the best thing to do is to just... I don't want to say dispense or dispose of, of those factions and forces, but just realize they aren't coming on board I now, mean, but they'll play the game with you. And if Trump wins, they'll want to be on the team, but they're not going to help you get to the political promise land. They just aren't. So for every Mitch McConnell, I mean, you don't, you don't dispense him because he's a, an important political figure, but you just make your mind up when you strategize about how to win, that you're going to have to figure out a way to win with 10% of Republican voters voting in favor of the Democrat candidate because they don't like not being in charge of today's Republican party. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
3: We have Joe calling from Hartsville. Joe, you're live.
4: Is Joe, Joe? there?
6: Can you, hear me? Can
0: you hear me? Yes, sir. We okay, hear you, you
6: now. Go. Oh, you got me. All right. Yeah, you got to remember the. That- the administrative state doesn't just exist with Democrats. It's it's a power structure, you know. They they are going to do everything they can to keep their power, and that's what it's all about. They 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 play the long game. They've been doing this since oh Roosevelt, whenever he put all this bureaucratic state in place, all these ABCs. Oh, you know, we, we got 12 budgets that they fund, but we've got like a, I don't know, last count was like 117, 120 different agencies. But, but look at how they, they, they keep growing the government and you can't cut nothing. That's what he's saying now. You can't cut nothing, but they set up their taxes. You know, these people aren't dummies. They like the, the taxes on cigarettes alcohol, tobacco, all that, that's set up to fund the CHIP's health care for the children. You know, you got to fund the children. That's all Nancy Pelosi always said. So if you, you know, everybody stops smoking, how do you fund that? Well, you have to go back and get more taxes. Then they tax the gas and put it in a trust fund to paid the roads and bridges around the United States, and they fritter all that money away. And now they're talking about billionaires. You know, they're not paying their fair share, and Biden keeps telling the lie about billionaires paying 8% income tax rate. Well, if you took everything they owned and put it against what their tax rate, yeah, it probably is 8%. But last time we had facts, you know, the top 1% pays about 42% of the taxes. But but they don't care about facts. They they want their results, just like gun deaths. 46,000 people die a year in gun deaths. 3% of those are buy rifles, any kind of rifle. But yet they want to go after the rifle. Why? Because they know that won't solve the problem. So then they have to go after the guns. But there's more deaths by knives and hands than there are by guns. Most of the death by guns is suicide. So you see how they frame it? They keep, they can't fix the problem. They have to keep growing government. You know, Lexington just found that out. They voted out a penny tax on fixing their roads. Now they're talking about a fee on their driver's registration for the car. So now instead of everybody chipping in to fix the road, just the drivers in Lexington County is going to pay for it through their car registration. There, you know that's government's going to get their money, and the people. Need it. <laughs> it's amazing, and every day we hear about more and more shootings in the Carolina area: PB, Florence, Marion, Dillon. You know, it's getting worse and worse, and we keep talking about morals. Y'all had a good discussion last Friday on judges and, and, and lawyers and this. Well, we keep looking for answers, and the answers is moral. This country was built, and they said it's for a moral people, and if it's not, it will not last. So people need to wake up and start voting their morals, because if you don't have any morals,
0: we're done. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone else is on the phone. Let's go there.
3: We have Mike in Darlington. Mike, you are live.
7: Hey, I agree with what Joe's saying uh, 100%. And But uh, these uh, pra- practical solutions to specific problems in this situation of the royal government, where the, the government owns everything, it, if you uh, if you own a piece of property or a vehicle,
8: it you
7: are, in effect, renting it from the county because they're going to charge you a rent every year on that property, whatever it may be. But the the main problem I see us facing and not even acknowledging it or talking about it, is social and cultural contagion. This situation where you have like the, they're like uh, economic or marketing fads, like Pet Rocks or Beanie Babies or Hula Hoops, whatever. And there are uh, those those things, but we have this thing where all of a sudden we go from a fraction of a uh, uh, one out of less than one out of 10,000 that have gender dysphoria to 25% of the people think they're, uh, something other than what they are. That is a, a social contagion that spread. And I think Joe is right that to combat this social contagion, one thing you can do is have a moral base. But we have not developed that. We've let that atrophy. Our churches, our uh, leaders have not uh, promulgated that and have not encouraged their people. And there are influencers. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party has latched on to every influencer they can get their hands on. And that drives the people into hysteria. And that is a dangerous thing. And, uh, this, um, social, social contagion is a real thing. Just that is real. Just like, uh, autism is real, but you can make it into a fad and exaggerate it out of all proportion so that logic and proportion are out of, uh, well, you just kill logic and proportion. And that is one of the dangers of social contagion because you're not fighting a logical situation; you're fighting an emotional situation. And I don't—I think that the Republicans and conservatives in this uh, world are neglecting that that
0: battle altogether. They're not even aware of it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Well, the point I try to make with Prop Eight—I mean, the, what have we learned? And, and I'll pick on gay marriage for a second. So in 2008 prop eight passes, I mean, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that, that's basically California saying no to same sex marriage. It passes in California, 52 and a half to 47 and a half percent. The courts get involved uh, and you get equal protection. You get a lot of, uh, I mean, anyway, legal language and this court says this and the ninth court says that and uh, from 2008. When California said no, and I'm talking about the people of California. I'm not talking about the body politic. I'm not talking about the General Assembly. The people of California voted 52.47 to 47.53 in favor of, you know, marriages between a woman and a man in 2000. And then the courts get involved and somebody files a lawsuit and the the courts say this, the courts say that they court shop, find a liberal judge. Liberal judge says people of California don't know what they're talking about. Um but this is a referendum, guys. Prop eight was a referendum. I mean every voter in South in uh me, California was allowed to vote, and I think three million I mean, more than that. I mean I can't remember how many million people voted. I'll try to find that during the break. But um but then you go from there what what changed? I mean, what did we learn from 08 until today? When when Prop 8 passes in California and the and and the voters, the liberal voters of California Who've historically voted for liberal presidents and liberal governors and and liberal senators? When the liberal voters, the same people that voted Nancy Pelosi in office, the same people that voted Dianne Feinstein in office, the same people that voted Kamala Harris to office, those people said thank you but no thank you to same-sex marriage in 2008 and Prop 8. And in 2023, we blown past gay marriage. I mean, gay gay marriage is like so you know the 80s want their foreign policy back. I mean, we're on a gender dysphoria now. And I think that's because the people have been unwilling to engage. And when interested in debate, the media has disallowed any sort of legitimate debate, conversation, dialogue to take place. And here we are, 15 years after the voters of California say no to gay marriage, debating whether or not a 12-year-old should be allowed to enter into a medical contract to have their sex changed without their parents or guardians knowing about it. Wow. I mean, how did we get from there to here, I guess, is my question. I think I understand how we did. I just like having a conversation with you about it. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University is here, Rocket is University of Tennessee <laughs> um, t-shirt or a golf shirt. Good morning, yeah. sir. How are you? Hey, good morning.
1: Tennessee had some guys drafted over the over the weekend so it's uh yeah we're kind of we're, we're another side that we're back
0: okay let's not talk as much early american history today i want to drag <laughs> you down the road of modern contemporary right. american politics but but i, w- I want to get a kind of a um a comparison between now and then sure sure so so stuff. if i argued that the majority of debate is dominated by these ah uh, these modern institutions of power and authority and the and the overwhelming majority of those are liberal in nature. Here you go. My words, <laughs> institutional power centers in America. Um, and I'm talking about wall street. I'm sure. talking about the media uh, with all due respect. I'm talking about universities, um, Hollywood, uh, you know, some of the administrative agencies within uh, within our federal government. Has that always been a confounding point in American history? Has there's always been a debate, Dr. Bolt, about who's in control of what, when it's comes to disseminating message and what is to be believed and what is not
1: know yeah, it's probably something uh, in, in our lifetimes, so the past 50 75 years if you will uh, Joe one of the calls, like Joe from Hartsville sort of made the point of what he called talked about the, the rise of the modern uh, state and of course you and he was pointing to FDR and the New Deal and he certainly is certainly correct in that instance that things had gotten so so bad in the country. That you needed all these government programs, these government bureaucracies, and prior to FDR and the New Deal in the 1920s, this is one of the areas of deregulation, uh, constant, perpetual tax cuts, and then once you get to FDR and the New Deal, the modern state is entrenched for both good or bad. And again, once it's in place, then you go. Then you've got World War II. You've got the Cold War. By the time things kind of settle down, it's 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 become a part of our lives. You cannot unravel it at this point. It is here to stay. And again, most of us, this is what we conservatives like to grumble about. It's it's only continuing to grow exponentially. And the the men and women we send to Washington, hopefully to disentangle it, are only adding to it. And so this is why Trump and the America First movement was so has been
0: so appealing to many of us. So what do you think? Okay, it's been appealing to many of us. G- give me the appealing aspects for, a, for a college professor to say that the Trump agenda was appealing to average Americans. I mean, that's, that's not what you normally hear college professors no. um, saying. You know that, I mean, I'm not selling, <laughs> so that's not a, a revelation to you in, and in your world, but what do you think the American working class found so appealing about the, um, the America first movement and the Trump agenda?
1: Well, most of these people had been left behind forgotten by both the Democrats and the Republicans. Nobody really cared about them. And what does it take? It takes a Manhattan real estate billionaire is the guy who kind of finds a way to cut through all of this and to speak rather plainly, rather bluntly, in a way that just resonated with many voters. Many of these individuals, right, we've seen were former Democrats, Obama Democrats, two times, and now Trump says, hey, I've got your, I know what you're feeling. We're going to try and make some changes. We know you're working 40, 50 hours a week and at the end, you've, you're barely making enough to make ends meet. You're not putting money aside for your kids' college funds. Uh, something needs to change. And again, this was a, a powerful message. It had kind of been, we've talked about how it been kind of percolating, but Trump was the guy who sort of sensed uh, that the people were ripe for change. They were tired, sick and tired of the status quo, uh, just to traditional norms in Washington that the, uh, the same thing was happening, whether you had the Democrats or the Republicans in power, Trump came in, said he was going to upset the apple cart, and boy, did he ever
0: upset. But about, when I say establishment, what do you hear? I mean, everybody has a different interpretation for the word. I yeah. mean, it's kind of a, it's a mystic figure out there yeah. somewhere, and you know what they're doing. You know who they are, and you know that they're, they're—but what, what, what do, you, what I, do what, you hear?
1: And I think—what I think it's oftentimes establishment Republican. Okay. And that's what I sort of think of your—the the Bush families, the—individuals the ch- who've been entrenched, these sort of generational families— Who've always sort of just moved along the line. For them, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. They just they want to hold on to their position. Politics is the power. family business. Is exactly. That fair to say? So they they know they know how the system is rigged. They've got their fingers in it. They've known how to manipulate it to protect themselves, their financial is, interests. And so again, anybody who sort of says, "Hey, I want to break the wheel. I want to I want to mess things up. I want to make some changes." naturally they're very afraid and so they want to hold on to their power structure again this is they've they've benefited from this for many years and they don't want to
0: lose what they've got so was there anything similar to what happened in the new deal excuse me yeah the new deal in early american history i mean was there any time any point in time in early american history where the government took a much bigger bite of the apple and and, and the public became beholden to the government? and in a way that we probably i mean we live in a post-second world war but we also live in a post new deal world
1: yeah
3: yeah.
0: did anything like that happen in early american history
1: well yeah jefferson thomas jefferson andrew jackson were all about curtailing limited government and from jefferson's presidency until the civil war only during the war of 1812 did you have federal taxes imposed on the american people ah the good old the good old days so from from the end of the war of 1812 until the start of the Civil War the American people didn't have to worry about a federal tax collector coming to their front door so how did we pay the bills uh, customs receipts taxes on tariffs foreign goods that's what essentially the government got around 90% of its money from the tariff and the rest maybe from some land sales uh, and a couple other little sales on bank stock that it owned from time to time but in the large large majority 90% uh, was from the tariff and that's why it was such a, a, an important divisive issue because you had to have, sort of like make sure the formula worked out just right to provide enough revenue for the government to function because nobody at that time wanted to introduce a bill saying uh-oh we messed up the tariff we got to impose federal taxes on the people that's the the main call of a, a lost election for sure. So,
0: so there was nothing similar to the New Deal. That there was nothing Nor- remotely close to that. What have been the most? What, what have been? What was the most egregious thing the government did in Jefferson's eyes, or, or Jackson's <laughs> eyes for that matter? Because they were the consummate. We okay, Jeffers-
1: Jefferson and Jackson hated a national debt, and they they spent every waking hour crunching numbers, looking at essentially of a spreadsheet, saying what can I cut? What do we not? Where is the fat? that I can trim from the government Jefferson Jackson their cabinet appointees members in Congress uh, this is what they were doing and again Jer- Andrew Jackson is the only president who can say uh, there was no federal debt when he was in office Jackson actually there was actually a surplus while Andrew Jackson was the president and now you had a big problem what do we do with the extra money. And Jackson said, give it back to the states, give it back to the people.
0: So the second, excuse me, the, the Civil War takes place. Yep. I mean, I know that's not your specialty, but you're still informed yeah. about about history. Is that when things began changing and people began looking to government post-Lincoln yes. um, to, to solve some of the issues of the world? Sure. And again, what happened is
1: national government under Lincoln had to take on more power uh, to save the Union, as Lincoln said. Uh, Lincoln, in many ways, maybe had to violate the Constitution in order to protect it. But again, once the the main thing about the Civil War that we oftentimes forget is once the South secedes, they're out of the government. They have no voice. They don't really have a voice to the end of the 1860s, and the national government now can do whatever it wants. All of the issues were on the table in the Civil War. It's not just about slavery. Uh, the North can impose its vision for transcontinental railroads, an industrial revolution. And by the time the South gets a seat at the table, it's too late. The industrial revolution
0: has begun. That is so interesting um, to me. So, so as an early American history, when you and I am mean, when you teach early American history today, do you contrast that with the political moment of now? I mean, do you ever integrate the New Deal? Oh, no, um, sure, no, you always try to make The Great Society, so, they so, can so, so So, give me. I mean, I'm, I'm your student um i paid a premium for this one-on-one lesson uh, that our listeners are also involved in so give me how you would incorporate the the commotion of today's government juxtaposed with you know early american history
1: oh again andrew jackson and donald trump a lot of people don't like but there are a lot of similarities so so uh, you, you you've you've discussed that with students oh, in sure. your class well that, that's how Walk you make me the, through the that connection. i
0: think that would be so interesting for our listeners to hear well
1: andrew jackson is he had been sort of a, a senator and a representative But again he was an outsider he had made his mark in the military and andrew jackson was this rough guy from the frontier official washington society was absolutely horrified that andrew jackson
0: this outsider Uh, 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 official washington society would have been water you talked about it just now the Bushes, the exactly uh the, the clintons so who would it who would it have been in that
1: day i we refer to them sort of as your aristocrats your government bureaucrats. Were their names?
0: I mean, can you think of who one was? A lot, a I mean- lot
1: of the other, uh, James Seton, the powerful editor of the Washington uh, Intelligencer, guys who had been around 20, 30 years. Uh, lots of office holders were afraid that once Jackson is going to come to office, they're going to lose their jobs. They've had these jobs for 20, 30 years. Several guys committed suicide. Uh, they threw themselves out of government windows uh, so that Jackson wouldn't wouldn't be able to fire them. So again, that's how afraid they were of Jackson, this outsider. And again, official, polite Washington society, when Andrew Jackson and all of his supporters come to Washington, D.C., there's a great quote. One of these Washington highfalutin aristocrats uh, said that he met a man from Louisiana who was half man, half alligator. He had just (laughs) never seen anything like this uh, before. And of course, the great story is Jackson is inaugurated. And he decides, I'm going to open up the White House. It's the people's. It belongs to the people. So all the people come pouring in. It's kind of like that that high school house party. They don't take their boots off. They start taking off the the fine china. They're ripping the paintings off of the wall. And Jackson says, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem on our hands. So Jackson finally solves the problem. He takes all of the punch bowls, which had the alcohol in them, takes them outside. The people follow the alcohol, and he closes up the White House. And for his
0: second inaugural, he, he didn't make that mistake again. So when you compare Jackson to Trump, a young person in your class responds how?
1: Well, I think they kind of could say, well, yes. And and when, once you get to Andrew Jackson, and then you start talking about how so many people hated and despised him. There was talk of impeaching Andrew Jackson. They couldn't impeach him, so eventually they censured him. And Jackson and Trump, the the other link is there's there's no middle ground. You either loved Andrew Jackson or Donald Trump. You wanted you'd charge the gates of hell for him, or you absolutely hated them and you wanted to see them go. And it's no accident that the first presidential assassination attempt uh, takes place while Andrew Jackson is in office, and that's how much hate uh, he sparked
0: amongst the American people. Who? What sort of response? Or no? Let me ask you this: Who of the early American? political figures gets the most unique response or the most response or have the most the interest of the young people i mean some are interesting people and some are not very interesting but when you teach early american history and you start talking about these figures or those figures or this person or that person who normally gets the, i don't want to say the friendliest reception but the most interesting yeah. reception
1: you see a lot of the the heads nod with jefferson you, sp- you spend a lot of time on Thomas Jefferson and they know him of the the author of the Declaration of Independence and they probably know about some of his extracurricular activities oh, but some of the other things of Jefferson and Jefferson when he invited European diplomats over to the executive mansion what we call the White House I mean Jefferson would greet them in his bathrobe and slippers and of course he would open the door himself there wasn't a servant and so then this was all of Jefferson's Republican simplicity all right, so, again, we're not anything that's sort of like trapped or looked like a king or anything that you have over in Europe. Uh, we're not going to have this. Jefferson, of course, doesn't give a State of the Union address. He's a terrible public speaker. He writes his messages out, hands them to a clerk, and tells the clerk to read it before Congress. Because, again, that's what kings would do over in Europe. So, again, just this Republican simplicity. Of Thomas lots of people didn't really know or, or know that about him. And they, there, there's some,
0: there, there are debates in, in in the body politic in several states that kids are not learning American history; yeah, they're well, not being taught sad. American yeah. history. You care to share an opinion? I don't want you to condemn or throw public education under the bus, or uh, but but you've been very candid with us here on the airways. Right. I mean, when you take a kid from high school and you begin down the road of engaging in early American history, do you do you sense that they know? Uh, the backdrop of the backstory of the foundations, or do you sense that some, maybe they're hearing this first time ever?
1: Some, some maybe have they've they've got the superstructure, if you will. And others, unfortunately, maybe are just were just an exposure, just didn't care while they were in high school. And so I say, by the time you're done with me, uh, it, it, a lot of my it's a civics lesson. You know, sure. You do the, the the great individuals. Uh, what I oftentimes do at the very first day of class is I give them sample questions that the INS uses on citizenship tests. So I say, well, hopefully you can you can answer these. If you can't answer them now, by the end of the course, you'll be able to answer them. And so, yeah, I make them good citizens.
0: And kids are respectful of that.
1: They get they get a kick out of that. I always say, I'm not going to deport you if you don't know these questions. But again, a lot of those questions that the INS asks. That's stuff that we're going to cover. What would be a, a
0: question? I mean, what would be an example of a question? I
1: oh, just functions of Congress. What are the two branches of Congress? How long do members of Congress serve for? Uh, what is the process of impeachment? Where do revenue bills have to originate? So we got a lot of these stuff we'll talk, but again, we'll talk about them in a historical context and so why they popped up. So good
0: stuff. Well, you're, you're teaching kids the underpinning of understanding exactly. what it means to be an American.
1: All right, so again, this, they've got a little skin in the game and hey, if they ever wind up on Jeopardy, uh, maybe
0: they'll, they'll have some U.S. history questions. Weird question, but I got to ask. <laughs> Are foreign students more or less interested in American history than we would expect
1: no they're they're fascinated yeah they seem to they've heard some of maybe just the, the stories maybe the top-down approach over there but once you get into sort of the nitty-gritty details and the personalities of some of those guys and they're the ones that really respect and you, you can see them their heads are kind of nodding along it's like well, that's not how I heard it I, I didn't know that about Jefferson or or George Washington so yeah they they
0: enjoy my classes do you get a lot of foreign students at Francis Marion
1: well yeah we do we a lot of them are athletes and so they come here to participate on one of the, some of the, the sporting teams, uh, but they usually tend to be
0: uh, very good students. They they work very hard. That's interesting. But you feel that the, the, as part of teaching early American history, you're creating a foundational understanding of American civics, yeah, that's and the I'm... American experience, and the American way of life, and and where we come yeah. from, and what we're about, and 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 potentially Absolutely. you know the, yep. the mistakes we, and and kids, your, your your classes are how old? I mean, I'm just so interested in this. Your kids are normally what age?
1: I guess usually like 18 to early 20s, and sometimes you get some raw freshmen. Sometimes you get some, some seniors who say, all right, I need a history course. Uh, I like to think that they come and take both because they want to learn all about history. Sometimes maybe they heard I'm, I'm the easy instructor, so I've heard. But again, I give, I get to teach the American Revolution at a school named after someone who fought in the Revolution. I get to teach the Civil War. I mean, I'm a pretty,
0: I'm a pretty lucky guy. I've, I've won the lottery. Are kids interested that their professor may be liberally biased or conservative biased? Do you ever have those conversations spontaneously in your class?
1: I, again, I play my cards close to the vest, but I'm very, very proud. I've had several students at the end of the semester say, "Hey, Bolt, I can't figure you out are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you a liberal or a conservative?" I think a lot of my colleagues on day one. they already know the answer to that (laughs) without
0: naming names we'll leave it there let's take a break we'll be back dr wilbold history chair francis marion university being very candid open and honest i'm letting in letting you into the mind of a college professor because when you listen to me you're anything but (laughs) in the mind of a college professor we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments did he say get in the weeds or smoke some weed i couldn't understand what he said uh anyway uh dave's not here yeah yeah. Dave's dave's not here dave's not here Hey, um, Dr. Wilbold, history chair, of Francis Marion University, is with us, being very candid and real, and um, and not so professorial. I <laughs> might add. I want I want to ask you a question because we've had a debate. We had a somewhat of an off-air debate last week with our delegation about the courts, and we're talking about the um, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judiciary, the judicial branch. Of our government, that would have been one of the INS questions, I guess, to secure some citizenship or to at least know you have a functioning understanding of the way government works. But mine and your hero, Thomas Jefferson, was not a big fan of the co of treating judiciary as a co equal branch of government. I've always maintained I'm not scholarly, I'm not professorial, but I've always maintained that Jefferson looked at the judiciary as somebody who needed to call the occasional ball and strike right, yeah. when executive and legislative couldn't reconcile. You say what to that?
1: No, I think you're you're right and it's Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78 says the courts are the least dangerous of the three branches of government. And Hamilton's a pretty good guy but man he got that one wrong in that instance. And so Jefferson wins the presidency. There's the the weird constitutional fluke it goes into the House of Representatives. He wins it in Mar- February of 1801. And the Federalists now realize, uh-oh, we're in the minority. Jefferson's got the presidency. His followers got Congress. So the Federalists quickly retreat to the courts. It's a lame duck Congress. They pass a bill creating six new, 16 new Federal courts. They pack them with Federalist judges. And there they thought, if Jefferson tries anything revolutionary, anything bat poop crazy, this is where we can block them and stop them. And Jefferson was just enraged uh, over this. Kind of, kind of cheap decision, cheap tactic that the Federalists employed. And Jefferson, as president, went after some of the federal courts, uh, impeached a How? federal How judge. How did he do that? Jefferson initiated impeachment proceedings. There was a federal judge up in New Hampshire, uh, John Pickering, who was just a, a drunk, and so Jefferson is able to remove him uh, from his position and get another judge appointed. And then Jefferson uh, initiates the first impeachment of a member of the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Samuel Chase, who would give charges, judges, Supreme Court judges at this time, had to ride circuit and would preside over typical court cases, unlike today. And Chase would would charge the jury. He would ask you, if you were a defendant in a capital case, are you a supporter of Thomas Jefferson or do you like the Federalists? And if you said, I like Thomas Jefferson, Chase, the judge, would tell the jury, this guy's guilty as sin, find him guilty. And so Jefferson, you you can't do this. You're you're really stepping out of your lane. And so Jefferson initiated an impeachment proceeding. The only time a Supreme Court justice has been impeached, he was impeached in the House. Uh, But then when the trial comes into the Senate, the guy who was the manager, a guy by the name of John Randolph, Randolph becomes very, very popular. Suddenly there's talk of Randolph becoming the next president, sort of upsetting the apple cart and defeating James Madison. And Jefferson says, this Randolph guy, you're, you're too radical. Madison's my buddy. Uh, so Jefferson cuts and runs, tells some of his friends, let him off the hook. Uh, but Randolph had a plan to go after eventually and even get the chief justice, John Marshall. So when did the courts get so active? It's probably post-World War II, probably the 1960s, once you have Earl Warren. Uh, Earl Warren was appointed by a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, he was expected to be a conservative. Eisenhower missed. Uh, so at the time, Republican presidents Eisenhower, Nixon, even Ronald Reagan, some of the guys, men and women who they thought were going to be good good conservatives, are, turned out to be a little more liberal. But the, the Warren Court issued a, just a whole bunch of very liberal you know, decisions. Mostly Ac- got,
0: Activist decisions, is that a fair characterization?
1: Yes. Y- yeah, and again, a lot of these related to law enforcement really just made it difficult for and
0: law enforcement to kind of to kind of do their jobs so so I want to get back to Jefferson for a second we'll go to the call in two seconds oh, sure. so who did Jefferson want to make those sorts what when executive and legislative couldn't get along couldn't right. couldn't agree what, what what did Jefferson want to happen and Jefferson in regards the, this to would
1: be very few and far between in Jefferson the occasional ball and strike exactly right. very very sparingly uh Jefferson Andrew Jackson believed that I mean now we have nine men and women on the Supreme Court but at the time a uh, seven. Men, unelected men, serving for life, having a power that is, there's no appeal. You don't get around the Supreme Court. That's that's undemocratic. And again, just too, too much power. They were afraid of being concentrated. And certainly they were right. Look at where we are
0: nowadays in America. Every question, every political question, sure. you know it's going to wind up before I mean, the court. I've argued we don't legislate, we litigate anymore. I mean, right. Not now as a conservative American. Uh, you know, I like it going to the Supreme Court because I feel my chances are better than not. It's going to come in my in my, but that's not the way to run a country. We're not
1: running and winning elections to legislate. We're winning elections in the Senate to make sure we put our Bingo. candidates to, to in make the sure we. Court.
0: I mean, whether we stack the court or not, we're, we're putting conservatives on the court or liberals on the court with yeah. the intent of understanding that hey. At some point in time, legislation will break down, we'll end up litigating, and you got a liberal court or a yep. conservative court. And that's I just don't think that's good for the oh, country. No. I mean, I Not think, at all? I think conservatives and liberals can't agree with that. I mean, we yeah. don't agree on much, and I respect that. But I, I do believe that, that conservatives and liberals both can agree. We're, we're probably litigating far more, oh, too much. And, and we Not should sure. be legislating or, or attempting to legislate for that matter. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
3: We have Jeff from Florence. Jeff, you're live.
9: Hey guys, how you doing?
0: Good morning, Jeff. How are you?
8: Hey, uh,
9: on the courts, and I wanted to get your take. You talked about impeaching judges, like, and and I wanted to get your take on what the founders would think of, like, Chief Justice Roberts' wife working for a placement agency that made she made ten million dollars, um, recommending and sacking law firms in front of the Supreme Court with. Personnel. Um, Clarence Thomas, he's got a billionaire benefactor who owns his mother's house and paid for him to go on lavish trips all around the world for the last 20 years. Uh, What would they think about Kavanaugh nine days after he becomes not Kavanaugh, uh, Alito uh, or or Gorsuch um, selling a house to one of the largest law firms in the country? Um, and making you know half a million dollars off of uh, somebody who's in front of the Supreme Court regularly. What would, what should the founding, what would the founding fathers say, and what do you think we should do about these entanglements?
0: Thank you, Jeff. Good not, question. Yeah. That's a very valid question. I'll let you have it at it, Bolton. Then I'll I'll follow.
1: <laughs> I, I think they would say it, it, it is a black eye, but the founding fathers, It is a very very high bar for impeachment. And I I would imagine they would probably say this doesn't look good, but again, is it high crime? Is it is it treason? I'd, I I would probably say that the, it it wouldn't warrant. And and again, you've mentioned some rather conservative justices right now. Uh, Abe Fortas, a liberal lion in the 1960s, uh, kind of had the same issue as well, and there was talk of impeaching him. Uh, Justice Fortas eventually simply resigned his seat uh, on the Supreme Court when there was ethics questions swirling around him i don't think it's going to get to any of that with the the current guys and we can't talk bad about the chief justice john roberts is is born uh, in the great city of buffalo new york so it <laughs> has
0: got some redeeming things about so, him. So some favoritism yeah. there i mean I, i'll say this it, it alarms me it concerns me conservative liberal nah, right pra- it doesn't matter to me no, i mean good look and, and you know when a when a when there's a When there's a belief of impropriety with people who make decisions of monumental consequence, we should question uh, some of the motivations. We should question some of the backstories. I mean, obviously, Jeff is going to single out some of the conservative judges. But right now, that's where the focus is. That's where the focus should be. I won. I mean, you know, I'm a conservative in the the typical sense. I mean, I, I guess... If I've got to be a liberal or conservative, and it's a binary choice now. One party uh, says conservative and the other party says liberal. I don't know what the hell I am, but I guess in, in the bi- in the world of that binary choice, I am a uh, defined as conservative. But but I am bothered yeah. that, that nine people have the sort of ability and influence to shape America's political discourse and you really don't have recourse in holding yeah. them accountable. You are stuck. I mean right. that that that's that's my problem. And um not a big fan of Roberts, more of a fan of Alito. Um but if the shoe fits, wear it. Sure. And if there's if there's um, improprieties there, let's investigate the improprieties. Um to, to your point, Dr. Bolt, I don't know how you hold a Supreme Court yeah. justice responsible. I don't know how you hold them accountable. As much as we don't like not having term limits. I mean term limits polls at about eighty four five percent in yeah. America. The American people wish we had term limits in politics, but you do get a chance to vote on that person right, exactly. every two, four or six, six years. years in the case of a Supreme Court justice, I mean, once they're locked in, I like mean, they're, they're the pretty well locked they're there in for life, exactly. But what can you imagine Jefferson saying about the um, the reported improprieties uh, of some of the conservative justices on today's Supreme Court?
1: And Jefferson did hold himself to a very high standard. And Jefferson probably would have said, you know, well, yeah, have you heard about Florida? It's 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 very nice. Uh, why don't you like retire somewhere uh, down there, Florida, Georgia? Uh, It might be nice just just for the sake of the country. But again, Jefferson, short of impeachment. And and when Jefferson went after some of these judges, I mean, Jefferson said, well, we got to get rid of this guy. But is being a drunk on the bench, is that, that, that's a very, very low bar. But again, Jefferson's hand was forced in the end just because the guy was making a mockery. And Jefferson politely tried to get him to step down, to step aside and the guy wouldn't, and he had no other alternative. Jefferson had the majority, and he had a lot of people support behind him. He could do whatever he wanted. Biden doesn't have that luxury.
0: As the role of judiciary has evolved, should the rules that govern judiciary have evolved accordingly? In other words, there was a day the Supreme Court didn't make that many big decisions. They made some, but it seems like they're making two or three every year now that have monumental impact in American culture, society, the economy and politics. So, so, so are we lagging? In other words, we have entrusted the courts with all these responsibilities, but at the Supreme court level, there's still not that accountability that Jeff, and I, I mean, I agree with Jeff here. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions that that Jefferson would want answered or any of our founders would want answered as well.
1: A lifetime appointment in 1790s, early 1800s, Early 60s. Now you get appointed on the court in your early 60s. You're there to your to your 80s. Yeah. So I mean, certainly that is not that wasn't on Jefferson's radar. Just the the life expectancy. I mean, Clarence Thomas was appointed in his early 40s, uh, and could wind up serving 40 years, 50 years
0: uh, on the bench if he chooses to, if he's if he remains in good health. I, I'm with Jeff. I mean, obviously, Jeff highlights the, the issues of the conservative justices, and there's I respect that. Right? But I mean, it is what it is. I mean, you know, right, you can't, there's these swirling allegations sure. I mean, around let, them. Let's be honest, and they don't seem to be unfounded. I mean, they seem to be credible that's allegations being made. I've just never been a fan of someone being appointed and not being held, but so accountable for the not, balance of no their like career. I mean,
1: tenure review or anything. Yeah. You're, you're there. You're it. you can do pretty much whatever you want, short of than Congress and yeah. impeaching. And you know nowadays, there's no way they're going to get two-thirds vote to get me off there. I am set for life. A Good gig.
0: It, it could be a reason to explore better ways to hold Supreme right. Court justices accountable. I mean, that could be – I mean, I don't want to say any good can come out of this because, once again, I don't care if it's a conservative judge or liberal judge. I mean, if some of the reporting is true and, and investigated and found to be true, I think there should be some penalty or Something. punishment. And I don't believe everything the media says – but, no, but no, you, can't you can't discount it as it with a grain of salt, but it's, but, but you got to at least explore whether it's there's, uh, there's accurate there's not. Be
1: some, some smoke with this fire. Yeah, there does will. seem to be
0: a good deal of smoke Again, with a couple of, um, not, of a of these fires. Not, not a good look at all. Let's take a call and then we'll, sure. um, we'll let Dr. Bolt get back to his, um, his, um, <laughs> other important duties.
3: This is Chad calling from Florence. Chad, you're on.
10: Hey, good morning, gentlemen. I just wanted to respond to, um, to Jeff's comment, um, and this is a typical liberal tactic. They'll take a little bit of information that may have an iota of truth, um, you know, and, and turn a molehill into a mountain, so to speak. They'll run away with it. Uh, Judge Gorsuch owned a fifth of the stake in this property that was sold to a law firm. Um, the head of that law firm was actually interviewed and said, "I've never met Judge Gorsuch. I've never had a case tried in front of Judge Gorsuch, nor has my firm." But yet the media will take the, the liberal media, at least I'll say, will take a small bit of information and turn it into this huge story. Yet they completely turned a blind eye to, let's take, for example, um, the Biden administration or, more importantly, uh, the Pelosi's involvement in pretty shady stock tradings and, and dealings of that sort. Um, but yet they'll focus on this, which seems to be a very legitimate sale. Judge it's just owned a portion of the property. He didn't have any real part in the sale of it. And just so happens that a law firm bought it. I mean, is it coincidence? I think so. Um, transactions like this happen in the private sector all the time. Um, but I think it's just really a sign of the uh, um, – You know, the less inability to be fair in how they view stories and always attacking, always attacking, instead of just sheerly looking at the facts. And that's all I got to say. I just, that just really grind my (laughs)
0: gears. Thank you, Chad. Well, Well, I mean, mean, obviously Jeff calls in to talk about the issues of the American political right. I love having these debates, but I think it's the only way we get to a better place. That's what the founders wanted. uh, Absolutely. Put some of this on. Let's air our dirty laundry equally, right? I mean, I've got it, you've got it, politicians have it, the business world has it. Um, Let's air the dirty laundry with equal proportion and representation. Thank you, Dr. Ball. Thanks, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Well, first up, we have Rodney
3: calling from Florence. Rodney, you're on.
11: Yeah, I was just curious because I hadn't heard him in a while. How's
0: Dr. Thigpen doing? Thank you, Roddy. You appreciate that. Um, Doc's wife passed away. I mean, he had some medical issues he had to deal with, and then um, his wife passed away. Uh, I think he's doing okay. I mean, I'm, I don't talk to him every day, but I think he's doing, doing okay. Um, interesting you would ask. I thought of him over the weekend. My wife and I actually um, at the beach had a conversation about uh, just typical – Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and we were, we began kind of talking about Fig Pin and um, his contributions not to this feeble attempt at radio brilliance, but politics in general uh, in our area. I miss the guy. I mean, he's one of my most favorite people in the world, and um, and has been such a a mentor to me in the in the world of politics. And um, you know, I, I don't know if he'll come back. I don't. I mean, the the chairs he is. I mean, if, if and when he decides to come back, he's always welcomed here. But um, but he had some health issues he had to deal with. And then his wife got, you know, sick and passed away. And I would imagine, um, I mean, you know, Doc's not a young buck. He wouldn't mind me saying that uh, over the airwaves. But he's not a, um, a young spry man anymore. But he's certainly been. I mean, the word I use, and then we throw around legend and icon and a revenue I debate, You know, I mean, McCartney's an icon. Is Springsteen an icon? And Rev tries to, you know, throw it in my face. No, he's a legend without question. He's a rock and roll hall of famer, a legendary rock and roll performer. But is he iconic? Um, I don't know about the word legend and icon, but Dr. Neil Thigpen is a treasure. An absolute treasure. Not to this show. Not to just this audience, but to politics in general. He has been an enormous blessing to my life, an enormous contributor to Republican politics in South Carolina. One day they'll write a story about who really did the grassroots, you know, foundational work necessary to build a successful Republican party. I think the majority of us who've run for office know that Mr. Roger Milliken paid for a lot of it, but Dr. Neil Thigpen was one of the originalist when it comes to building a Republican party in south carolina and every republican officeholder in this state owes him to some degree a debt of gratitude i know he got sideways with the trump crowd and he knows he got sideways with the trump crowd he and i've had multiple off-air conversations about where to go from there and and the fact that you know conservative inc had been taken over by uh, uh you know a band of misfits so to speak and he never got comfortable Uh, with that, but, but if you're a Republican in South Carolina, um, and and in some way, shape or form, there's a debt of gratitude we all owe to Dr. Neil Thigpen. And once again, icon legend, when we talk LeBron and Steph Curry and Larry Bird and magic Johnson and Tom Brady and Brett Favre and Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen, we're talking about legendary and iconic. Um, the word I can refer to with Dr. Thigpen is just treasure. He is an absolute treasure to my life. Personally, a treasure to the body politic in South Carolina and a treasure to the Republican Party and the cause of conservatism. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
3: Up next, we have Charles and Lamar. You're on, Charles.
11: And you're all going to make me follow that.
0: You'll do just Uh, fine. You think so? I'm sure you will. You
11: know, uh, your guy that you had on this morning that was a Trump guy, um, 15% 15% of Republicans don't support Trump because he's an ass. It has nothing to do with the fact that they want to maintain power and all that. Maybe that's the Mitch McConnells in Washington that are that way, the, the Mitt Romneys in Washington. The people in America, people in Darlington, South Carolina, who are Republicans and don't support Trump, don't support him because of his attitude and his smart mouth. You and I understand that. We accept it and we support him anyway, but that's the problem. This guy is a a Trump supporter, but he doesn't understand why um, we're losing some people that otherwise would vote Republican. By the same token, I have a lot of friends who are Trump supporters, that just tell me flat out, I'll never vote for DeSantis, I don't trust him. Well, what has DeSantis done to, to cause you not to trust Well, I just don't trust him. In other words, it's just, it's blind faith, just like this guy has for Trump. Now, to follow up on your favorite caller's call from just a few minutes ago, um, I want to ask you, what would our founding fathers say if they found out there was a Supreme Court justice who said she had no idea what a woman is because she's not a biologist. What would the founding fathers say if they found out there was a secretary, uh, excuse me, a speaker of the House who said, you have to vote to pass the bill so we can find out what's in the bill. You see, two can play this game. Y'all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Jeff. And I wish two played the game. That's the more, I mean, really and truly what excites me is that debate why aren't we playing that game anymore i mean why, why is the media decided why have these institutional power centers decided to not allow us to have that debate damn it that's for the best interest of the country jeff needs a seat at the table charles needs a seat at the table i need a seat at the table um the the, the people who promote the institution of conservatism need a seat at the table the trump crowd that wants to implement ideas in the name of not orthodoxy conservatism, but America first conservatism, we need these vigorous debates. We need every day Vivek Ramaswamy talking to Chuck Todd and Donald Trump talking to George Stephanopoulos, and we need a fair shake. I am more than confident in articulating my views and my values as Charles is, as Dr. Boldy is, if I believe I'm getting a fair shake. And, I, and I, and I, you know, Charles said something very interesting to me. I made a note um the serrano who called as a trump surrogate i mean he he worked for trump he's a republican strategist i still think he misses the mark the reason i think he misses the mark josh is he seems to remind me of those who promote the institution of conservatism instead of the implementation of ideas um the, the the you know to me conservatism is virtuous I mean, it, it's it's to be honored, it's to be respected, it's to be revered. It's a it's a concept, it's a notion, it's an idea of how to effectively govern a big, complicated nation. But but it's not an institution that that that, that doesn't deserve to be criticized and questioned and second-guessed. Um, I mean, I, I'm a little bit like Tucker. I apologize for how long. I was blindly loyal to neoconservatism because William Buckley and George Will and Atlas Shrugged and some of these, uh, well, Ayn Rand wasn't, wasn't that ill, but you see where I'm headed. And, and I, you know, I think we've always got to debate and question and, and consider, um, you know, Charles's ideas and my ideas and Larry's ideas and Dave's ideas and, and Josh's ideas and, of course, Jeff's ideas need to be included. But the reason we're not getting anywhere, the reason, one of the primary reasons America's in decline today, And I think it's in precipitous decline. One of the main reasons, I mean, obviously not being able to curtail or constrain our spending. I mean, debt will lead to failure. Eventually, our debt will be our demise. But aside of that, we're not having these debates. We're not having discussions about things that matter tremendously. If I come on the radio and say that I'm not in favor of a 12-year-old being allowed to enter into a medical contract without parental consent, then I'm not showing compassion and tolerance. No, to me, I'm showing a degree of common sense that is woefully lacking in our political discourse. So, so, so when Charles says two can play this game, it's the only shot we've got. I mean, if we don't let two play the game, we're done. I mean, we may be done anyway because of our debt. I mean, I've, I've tried to explain that the best way I know how. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Stanley Drunkenmiller said the only sure bet he can make today in finance and investing is shorting the dollar. I mean, Drunken Miller is one of these legendary investing gurus, and he says, you know, there are a lot of things I'm not certain of. I don't know if, if tech is this, and I don't know if, if, um, if uh, you know, transportation is this, or I don't know if, um, if uh, you know, AI is this. I mean, there are a lot of things I don't know, but I do know we're going to see a precipitous decline in the dominance of the dollar. I mean, that's Drunken Miller. That's not, that's not Ken on the radio, you know, giving some elementary opinion of investing in finance. That is a very, very seasoned pro who's made uh, billions of dollars because he made the right investment moves and, and employed the right investment strategy. And he says, the only thing I'm sure of is the decline of the dollar. The, 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 the dollar will not be the dominant currency uh, moving forward. Now, when? He doesn't know. He'll say that. I, I don't know if it's today or tomorrow or a week or a month or a year from now. But but we're we're heading down that path and that road. So you've got the financial and debt reality that I think will lead to our decline or is leading to our decline as we speak, but not, in, not allowing these debates. It excites me when I hear Vivek Ramaswamy challenge Chuck Todd and, and kind of sort of put him in his place. I mean, if you're a reasonable guy, not, not politically biased, not, not motivated or paid by somebody to say something that is fundamentally dishonest, you, you got to kind of give Ramaswamy the credit. I mean, he mopped the floor with Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd said there's there's a body of science out there that shows that gender is, uh, you know, gender a spectrum. No, th- there is no science that says that. And Ramaswamy said there's no science that says that. Now, now Chuck Todd intentionally misled, and, and Chuck's a smart guy. I mean, you don't end up hosting Meet the Press by being a moron. Todd says basically, hey, we're not talking about sex. We're not talking about chromosomals uh, or chromosome. We're talking about gender because gender can be influenced by societal conformity or not. And, and those are the, the debates we need. Th- those are the questions that politicians should be forced to ask and corporate executives. The, the corporate, the CEO of, give me a company, the CEO of pepsi I mean, I'll pick up on uh, one of our sponsors, one of the better sponsors we've ever had on this feeble attempt at radio brilliance is Pepsi Cola. I mean, they jumped on board early. I love dealing with the people at Pepsi of Florence. But what if the CEO at Pepsi was asked to give his opinion on whether or not a kid should be allowed to enter into a medical contract at the age of twelve without parental consent. Would the CEO of Pepsi denounce that? You wonder. You really and truly do, because the media is convinced and these institutional um, power centers have convinced us that if we say something against that, then it's not compassionate nor tolerant. No, somebody needs to speak against human depravity. Somebody needs to speak against evil. Somebody needs to speak against concoctions from hell. It doesn't have to be somebody spiritually motivated. I mean, I would be spiritually motivated in that regard because I see gender dysphoria as the work of the devil. I'm not some spiritual superhero, but when I look at gender dysphoria, I see the devil. I see evil. I see human depravity. But but I'm told by the media and these, once again, institutional power centers that the only reason I oppose it is because I'm not compassionate nor, nor tolerant. Well, I'm not going to be compassionate of evil. I'm not going to be tolerant of, of evil. And that's, I mean, Jordan Peterson does about as good a job as anybody of explaining that argument uh, that you can hear. So I'd encourage you to go um, listen to Peterson when he tries to explain his take on you know um, minor children and gender mutilation. I mean, I mean, really, is that the country we want to live in? Or do we? Do you want to live in a country that celebrates the gender mutilation of a minor child? I mean, that, that, it's bizarre. To me. How do we get there? But let's have that debate. If someone believes that America is better by allowing a minor child. To have their gender mutilated by a medical professional without a parent or guardian know about it then damn it let them say it let them go on the record and say yes i'm in support of that every democrat in washington voted last week or the week before to allow men to compete against women in sporting events how many news people have asked that question of a democrat in washington how many democrats have appeared on uh, on, on media shows and print media, digital media, Twitter, Facebook, ABC, CBS, NBC, New York. How many Democrats have been asked? So you're cool with men competing against women in organized sports. You don't hear that question asked. Well, I mean, if you don't hear that question asked, then you don't have to defend some of the insanity that that, that is promulgated in the American political system. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
3: All right, we have David calling from the PD. David, you're live.
12: Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, Chuck Todd is a sly guy. So, um, you know, Ramaswamy, he used that term work, faith, family, patriotism. I'll give Jefferson credit, Thomas Jefferson. That word faith, to me, let's look at it from a political term, he's a creator. It doesn't mean that we just evolve from a swamp or AI or whatever these people do today, Ken, and I was thinking about, you, you witnessed that interview uh, on ABC. You remember the, at Temple University, I call it the female carrot top. You remember seeing that? There was a girl there that they interviewed. I do. That said she, would, she, just, can, she don't like Biden, but she don't want to vote for Trump. And then they said, you know, she's 21 years old, but this a second-time voter. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe she was 18 back in 2020, And if you look at Pennsylvania, I'm going to focus on Pennsylvania. Man, are they the ballot harvesters delight? I I mean, I watched this thing. I I would give Martha a a Pulitzer Prize or something or Emmy. She she exposed. They went to a senior center. How easy is it to ballot harvest in a senior center? They were on a college campus. How easy is it to, to ballot harvest there? And they had another segment. They were just walking up to people on their, their porch because they live in these row houses. And that's what these people in Pennsylvania are used to living in, is row houses. Uh, so just these densely populated areas, it's unbelievable how easy it is to ballot harvest. And I was going to ask you, did you have a chance to watch this Randy Weingartner, that teacher's union lady, last week? I did. Uh you did mm-hmm. okay. Now, this is another thing about that is that here you got somebody defending all this COVID policy, and then where did the COVID money go to? It went to a lot of state pensions up north, and then did he you know that Black Rock manages a lot of these? Te- I mean, teachers'
0: pensions. So there goes your little cathedral right there. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it, guys. There's this pyramid uh envision a pyramid you know what a pyramid looks like um at the point of the pyramid i mean that's the epicenter of power i mean for for argument's sake let's just imagine that pyramid at the epicenter or the tip of the pyramid the very top of the pyramid you you got all the peasants down low then uh, you know you got middle class then you got upper middle class then you got the upper class then you got the elites then you got the you know the super elites who do you believe is at the top of the pyramid but I, mean, I would be interested in that. I mean, I've got an opinion, but who do you believe when the pyramid reaches its, it's just its, its, because, its, its, you know, it, it, ascends into the, into the sky and it gets to a point it gets, you know, smaller and more narrow and more pointed as it goes up and up and up and up. Who is at the, the, the peak of the pyramid? I mean, who do you think? Who does Jeff think? Who does Charles think? Who does Larry think? Who does uh, Josh think? Who do I think? Let's have that discussion. Maybe not. Um, today, we're going to run out of time here, but I'd love to hear uh, kind of an answer and why. Um, is it Vanguard? Is it BlackRock? Is it Elon Musk? Is it Bill Clinton? Is it Jeffrey Epstein? Is it, you know, is it Rush Limbaugh? Is it Tucker Carlson? Um, when, when we work our way, once again, the bottom of the pyramid is the peasants. I mean, they don't have any say. They're along for the ride. They're the best way they know how. And then you get to the uh, kind of the lower middle class, upper middle class, middle class, excuse me, middle class, upper middle class, a little bit elite, kind of elite, absolute elite, super elite, uh, borderline oligarch. Um, you know, s- some of the political class are intertwined. I mean, the political class, any in the peasants, but when you get to the upper middle class, you find a politico or two. When you get to the elite, you find a lot of politicos. When you get to the super elite, you find even more politicos, donor class, at the at the top of that pyramid is whom? I'm asking. I mean I don't know. At the top of that pyramid, who do you think reigns supreme? Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Take a break back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. our number someone's on the phone. Let's go there. We have Troy calling from Kentucky. Troy you're live
8: Hey good morning Ken. Uh first thing I wanted to say is uh Josh is really doing a good job and uh I think he's got things down pat, and he's he's just doing a real good job. Um, I also wanted to touch on something you had said before the break about, uh, you know, the top of the pyramid. And in my opinion, I would say the top of the pyramid is probably consisted of big pharma, big tech, um, you know, big Wall Street companies, you know, companies like Vanguard, BlackRock. But also, I would even throw in uh, the establishment of both parties, but more so the GOP, because they seem to have more of a, a notion of how things should be done and, you know, just kind of stuck to the old ways. Uh, that, that's just my two cents. I mean, you, you may disagree with me. No,
0: thank you, Troy. You appreciate that. I think power in the Republican Party has been institutionalized. I mean, that, that's kind of a weird way to look at it. Thank you, Troy. You appreciate it. But I think that's just kind of a weird way um, to look at it, the institutionalization of power and influence. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about a single person. I mean, who? what, what single person stands out to me? Um, top of the pyramid, the pinnacle of the pyramid. Um, I mean, it, I'm, I'm thinking about the peasants, and I use that word. Uh, a little bit loosely, but if, if, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid are those who don't have any power, don't have any influence, don't have any sway, uh, they, they kind of live their lives the best way they know how, um, I'm thinking about, you know, just, just, I mean, I don't want to say the American working class because the American working class together has power. I think they've proven that by electing Trump, uh, one time and getting 75 million votes, um, the second time, but they certainly aren't at the pinnacle. You know, you got the middle class, the working class, kind of caught in the middle of all that muck. Um, but I'm thinking about geographically. It, it would be hard, Troy, for me to say, this person is the closest thing the world has to a king as anybody. But but I think about a place. Uh, if, if the if the peak of the pyramid is a place, to me, it's Davos. I mean, that's where big pharma gets together with big finance. And big finance gets together with big health care, and big health care gets together with big government. You've got Larry Fink eating lunch with Jamie Dimon, eating lunch with, you know, the, the director of the World Health Organization, eating lunch with the world, I mean, excuse me, the, the head of the CDC or the, you know, the IRS, I mean, all of those um, technocrats and um, I mean, the American oligarch. I love to say that, the American oligarch. People look at me, we don't have oligarchs. I said, of course we do. We don't call them oligarchs. But we certainly have oligarchs in America. Um, Larry Fink and BlackRock are oligarchs. You know, Vanguard is an oligarch. Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan are oligarchs. They have the ability to influence government in ways that very few people ever have in human history. And when you're not influencing the government of Guam or the government of Sudan, you're influencing the most powerful government the world has ever known. That, that is an enormous um, you know, that, that's enormous value. I mean, it, it brings enormous value and sway to the conversation. But, but it, as it relates to the political establishment, I can't speak to Democrats because I've never spent a lot of time in the Democrat Party. I mean, I, for 20 years, roughly 20 years, I was a Republican office holder. So I could speak and, um, and in fairly accurate terms about the, the way the Republican Party worked. And the things I liked about it the things I didn't like about it things they liked about me the things they didn't like about me but I've always felt that the the institutionalization of power um kind of embodied the political the, the establishment of the right once again I don't know the left I mean I, I think I'm aware of who they are and what they're about but but I've never been embedded I've never had a key to the to the office so to speak With the Republican Party, there was a day in my life I kind of sort of had a key to the office. They didn't care much for me having a key to the office, but it couldn't stop me from having a key to the office. But in that office, I saw an effort to, once again, institutionalize power and authority and control. And I mean, it, it bothered me to the nth degree. I remember the first day being allowed to go in the room, the hypothetical room that is the institutionalization of power. I remember how icky I felt. I don't want to be here. I mean, this isn't made for me. I mean, I'm not made for this, and this is not made for me. That the the institutionalization part of it was something that I just found, ah, I I don't want to be here. I don't want any part of this. Um, you got to say this and say that, whether it's true or not, whether you believe it or not. But on the other day of saying something that you may not believe and may not be true, there's a hell of a payday. I just remember saying i'd rather be broke i'd rather i'd rather fight the good fight and and manage my financial affairs the best way i know how than say things i don't believe say things i know not to be true and once again that's part of the institutionalization of the power structure let's go to the phone jeff from florence has called back jeff you're live
9: hey ken um i really was interested in uh, dr bolton's opinion on that and i wasn't trying to get a gotcha i know they're equally on the take on the Supreme Court. Well, not right now. They um, aren't. I mean, most
0: of the smoke is um is, is around the um the conservative justices. But we've got a conservative court.
9: Yeah, um, it's it, it's you know I, I wasn't uh, you know I, I it was an honest uh, question. Sure. Um, not to try and get you, um, but I did your your conversation about who rules the world in the pyramid. Um, I, I think you should do a whole show on that, and I'll, I'll put forward this. We talk about tech companies. We talk about pharmaceuticals. But oil has ruled the world since the um, Industrial Revolution. And when I say oil has ruled the world, I mean the Saudi, Ara- the, the House of Saud, Saudi Arabia. I mean the, the standard oils, the Rockefellers. Uh, they're all – I mean you don't have to look far to see that they're all in cahoots. Every national oil company from China to Venezuela to – you know all the Euro, uh, Middle Eastern oil companies to Royal Dutch Shell. Um, that's who, if you want to look and start your investigation, that's where you should look. And and they rule almost every aspect globally of the of the world. Um, I read an interesting thing the other day. The industrialized world as we know it it, it has existed, but the Third world countries that are coming up and now starting to use oil—that's that's the emerging market for them, and they'll control those countries and in the, the the history and the path forward for all of those countries that are developing.
0: I don't disagree. Thank yeah. you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And I and I wrote down. I mean, I, you know, Larry Fink, Jamie Dimon, um, Saudi Prince, soy, Saudi Oil Minister. I mean, those were the, whoever they are. I mean, I don't know who the Saudi prince is. I don't know who the the Saudi oil minister is. But obviously, as Jeff said, they have enormous influence and sway. Um, I mean, looking back, no question about it. Looking forward, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where we are in relation to um, dependency on fossil fuel. No doubt, some of the emerging markets are not going to be equipped to innovate at the at the rate some of the uh, you know developed countries have, and they'll be still very, 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 very dependent. On um on carbon emitting fossil fuels to power that emerging economy or growing economy. So yeah, I mean I, I'm with Jeff. There there is no doubt that in that club include the Saudi prince and the Saudi oil minister, uh, the CEO of Exxon, the CEO of Shell, the CEO of BP. Um, you know, once again, I don't know who it is, but I know where it is. It's Davos. and and I and you know I, I'm thinking about what what liberals and conservatives can agree on. And I think we can agree, disproportional power. I mean, it's not a newfound phenomenon. I mean, it's not like, hey, all of a sudden we woke up and 100 people, you know, dictate the terms and conditions of which, you know, billions live their lives under. I mean, I think that's always been there. Um, Are they they more in your face than they've ever been? Um, I've seen two. I'm watching Fox News this morning. Fox bores me to death with no Tucker, but I'm watching it. So, so Fox is on both televisions, and Josh's studio and my studio, um, Fox is on the tube. I've not heard anything interesting said, not seen anything interested reporting, but I've seen about three BlackRock ads this morning. So, so if conservatives are suspicious that there's this, um, that there's this um, uh, promoting of the institution of power and authority and BlackRock is at the pinnacle of that, then that it, what is BlackRock's motivation? what is Vanguard's motivation? What is the motivation of the Saudi prince and oil minister? I mean, it's it's power and money, right? I mean, it's greed. It's um. I mean, it's the Gordon Gecko line of the original Wall Street. Greed is good. I mean, they they kind of subscribe to that notion. I understand that they have these uh, social scores and they want to give back and be philanthropic. I mean, I understand all that. I mean, that there's a game they play in and how their company is perceived. Uh, that there's a game the Saudis play. And, and how they control or not the oil markets. But um, that would be an interesting show. It would be a complicated show. It would be a very disagreeable show. But I think it would be a consequential show. Who runs the world? I mean, is it 100 people? Is it 1,000 people? Is it 10,000 people? Is it 100,000 people? Is it 16 governments and 32 businesses? Is it 32 governments and 16 businesses? I mean, who makes the spokes? I mean, who makes the gears turn in the global economy? Who makes the laws and who makes the rules and the regulations? Um, If gay marriage is legal in America today, why? I mean, if in 2008, the voters of California, the fairly liberal voters of California, voted down same-sex marriage, who got to work? I mean, who got to work and turned the screws and figured out a way? Uh, I mean, Obama was the perfect messenger, right? I mean, no question about it. A um, a five-star liberal. Who was unbelievably articulate as an orator, um, a transformational, so a generational sort of political figure, but but who worked behind the scenes to get that um, from Prop 8 passing in California, denying two men the right to marry, and the courts get involved, but because nothing is ever as it appears, I mean, there's always an underlying story. I mean, I'm talking about conservative Inc. or liberal Inc., uh, the Democrat Party or or the Republican Party, and that's the conspiracy. I think a lot of people are rallying around. People on the left believe that the game is rigged. Bernie Sanders was a k- kind of an example of why, uh, how they express their frustration. I mean, he's a he's a socialist. You know, he wants to level the playing field. He wants to use government to to basically um, equalize society in some way, shape, or form. Trump was just um, k- kind of a rebellious Republican. Um, you don't like what I say, so what? Get out of my damn way and let me have at it. You know, we're going to tear the um the institutional structures down because they've not been fair uh, to the working class. So you had, uh, I mean, obviously Sanders and Trump are different people, but they, they their messages were very interchangeable. I mean, they said some of the same things. Um, you know, the game is rigged. The, the, the wealthier are in control, the influential are in control. Nobody denies that nobody's naive to that. Well, I mean, there's probably some young people that are pretty naive to that, but, um, but, but if you had a room full of Trump voters and a room full of Sanders voters, and you asked that question, Hey, there's this pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is the most powerful people, the ones that make all the rules that the Sanders voter has to live under the Trump voter has to live under. Who do you think's in that room? I mean, if there's a room somewhere, if there's a banquet room somewhere that holds a thousand people, who are those thousand people? I mean, I'm talking about government agencies, I'm talking about corporations, I'm talking about um, international monetary. You see where I'm headed? Some of the folks that um that construct the global financial markets. I mean, there there's a big story there. Uh, once again, Stanley Drunken Miller, one of the legendary investors in America says that um, the only bet he's sure of today is shorting the dollar. I mean, he talks about AI and technology and and oil and green energy, and he says, you know, a lot of those things we treat as normal, but but we can't find a reason. Drunken Miller says, I can't find a reason to be long dollar. I can find a reason to be long oil, short oil. I can rationalize, you know, long green energy, short green energy. I mean, there are complexities there that, that we don't know the, the answers to. But, but how do you say, man, I'm bullish on the dollar? I mean, the government's really got their feces consolidated, and they've got us in a, in, a, in a positive heading direction. I mean, nobody can honestly say Jeff can't say that. I can't say that. Charles can't say that. No caller to this show can say, hey, it looks like better days ahead for the dollar. But some of these other, I mean, they're very complex issues, very complicated matters that require serious conversation, but the conversation is being dominated by people who have bought the right to give their opinion and not allow you to give to give yours. And a lot of that is constructed, I think, personally, at the the many, many, many meetings they have in Davos. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. I was thinking about power and influence. I mean, I, imagine, I mean, I'd grown up in a, in a small town, no stop light, build truck beds for a living, I had a black suit to wear to church, a blue suit to wear to funerals. And the next thing you know, I get in in the middle of the muck, and I'm talking about the institutionalized power, and I'm trying to better understand it. I mean, I know much more about it today than I did when I was actually in the throes of being an elected official. But but I I, I was thinking about – I don't know why I thought of this during the break, but uh, Mark Twain famously said – I mean, Mark Twain famously said a lot of things – but, but one thing he said, because I was thinking about clothes, for some stupid reason, about Davos. And uh, I was thinking about, I wonder how many tag and custom-made suits there are in Davos. how many I wonder how many of those, um, the Davos man and woman, wonder how many of those people uh, basically shop off the rack, so to speak. And Mark Twain once said, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. I don't know why. That's just always stuck with me about, you know, dressing for power, dressing uh, for success. And Mark Twain, I mean, famously said a lot of things, but when he said clothes make demand, I guess somebody said, why is that? Cause how many times you've seen naked people have, you know, influence on society. So, um, yeah, we, we may try to go down that road, but I'll, but I'll need your help. I mean, if we're going to dedicate a show to, you know, this pyramid and at the pinnacle of the pyramid, Josh, I'll ask you as a 25 year, um, uh anti-vaxxer would uh, <laughs> say that was some uh term of endearment but when i when i ask you josh who do you think runs the world i mean y- your initial response is what
3: it's a complicated question but right off the bat i'd have to say corporations
0: okay you're talking about BlackRock, vanguard exxon um elon musk
3: maybe i okay. mean i definitely think jeff was hitting on a point
0: talking about oil without question there, there's no doubt about it. I mean oil has been the prevailing force. I mean it really and truly has. When you look at uh, innovation, uh, human advancement, I mean it, it's it's a pretty straight line until you get to the ability to refine oil into petroleum. I mean, I, I've read a lot about that. Uh, the great leap of mankind is really when we realize we could take a barrel of oil refine it into a you know a gallon of gasoline or or diesel fuel or kerosene that's when human beings really began improving the quality of life uh, their existence on this on this planet uh you know for thousands of years we, we lived I don't want to say similar existences but we didn't advance anywhere near the rate of of the human advancement since the ability to take oil out of the ground refine it into a you know, a um, a petroleum that will power equipment, uh, power cars, power trains, power just um, land-moving equipment to create developing and, and construction opportunities. I mean, Jeff's exactly right. He hardly ever is, but he's exactly right on this particular issue. Whomever the Saudi prince and Saudi oil minister are, uh, I mean, why is Putin a very important and consequential figure in world history right now? I mean, because Putin understands the power of being an energy producer, the power of, you know, Russian oil and uh, and how much they have the abundance of of natural resources and his willingness and their ability to pursue it. Um, What we've done in America um, by way of lessening our energy independence is make Putin an even bigger deal, even higher on the uh, on the pyramid. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.